Hello and welcome to Techno Social. Today's guest was Pad. He's a business coach who works with archetypes, the stories and characters that underlie our lives. He's a fascinating dude. We had a really cool conversation about mythology and about the way these archetypes play out in our lives. Mm, and how using these archetypes and this view of ourselves and of the world, we can sort of improve ourselves and our organizations and the world around us and how it's just an, a fascinating technique for, for um, all kinds of introspection and inspection of the world. I hope you enjoy the show, guys. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. So Excellent to welcome, be here. Thank you. Welcome to Techno Social. Mm-hmm. So we met a couple of weeks ago, started a kind of very interesting conversation about archetypes and the work that you're doing with archetypes. And I mm-hmm. thought it'd be great to invite you on and continue that. So perhaps you could just begin by introducing yourself and kind of talking a bit about what it is you do. So to some, I'm known as a success coach. Uh, mm. I essentially work with individuals, with teams, uh, in order to help them to improve their performance in all kinds of ways. But mm. I particularly have this model around the archetypes, as you mentioned, which you know, would be great to unpack today. Essentially, we're saying, guys, um, what is it you're seeking to do? We set up measurements uh, for their performance, mm. and then we start looking at how they're behaving in the light of the, the goals that they're seeking to achieve. Mm. And then from that, we start saying, okay, what has to change. Mm-hmm. And that can happen at all sorts of levels. But what I've found over the years is that this archetypal model is one of the quickest ways mm. of somebody changing the essential perspective of who they are, not so much what they do. And once they've shifted at that level of identity, then they're able to very naturally see what it is they need to do mm. um, in the real world in terms of their behaviors. Mm. Cool. something kind of very deep about who you are and I suppose the story yeah, you tell yourself about yourself. It is. A story comes into it very much. Um, and it is very deep. Uh, when I, I was first asked to present this, the big sort of first public time when this went out, I'd written a book in 2012 called mm. Team Me, initially titled Using Archetypes to Get Out of Stuck, um, because I had this crazy theory, which I've never been able to disprove, that if you are stuck in any situation in life, it's simply because you haven't plugged into one of six archetypes mm. and access their power, awaken their capabilities in that situation. Mm. Any, and, and I keep saying that must be, that must not be true in some situation, but I haven't yet found a situation where that isn't true. Mm. <laughs> I mean, sometimes the change is instant, but it depends on how much development work is necessary. You know, it's like going to the gym. You can go to the gym and you can do any kind of, of workout, it will strengthen the muscles that you've got. There are some things that just very quickly you're suddenly able to do in a whole lot more. There's other things you just need to work at it, work at it, work at it. And then six months, a year later, you say, actually, that's now natural and easy for me. To start with, I felt sick doing that mm. exercise. You know? And it's similar with archetypes. You can build characteristics in yourself uh, very easily mm. if you put the effort into the program. 
So what do we mean by an archetype? Because mm. I think that's kind of where we should really start this conversation. Yeah, so we've jumped in already, but the, the, the term, the etymology of archetype, so you've got the arc bit and you've got the type bit. Well, you've all used a typewriter, I presume, <laughs> in some shape or form. Well, a typewriter creates type. Um, the type is, un- unlike in the old days, it was handwriting, it was quills and it was pens, that's, and, but everybody would do an F in a slightly different way. You'd recognize it, but it's slightly different. A typewriter was the first instrument that they had uh, where an individual, you had printing presses doing this before, but an individual could print a type, a form, a model, mm-hmm. and it would stay that same shape, same size, same in, in a form every single time they hit the letter F hit the letter A, it would be the same mm. thing. So it's the type, okay? So it is a like fixed a form. Standardization in a way. It's a fixed form, which, yeah, for as many times as you replicate it, <laughs> it's going to be fixed. Okay, yeah? cool. So that's the type bit. So we hear about stereotypes, we hear about you know, typewriters, we've got all sorts of types up here in, in the world. Um, so we're talking about a model. So um, an E-type Jaguar was, okay, we're now doing a different form of a Jaguar. You know, we're going to call it E, E, whatever, type. <laughs> it's a model. Mm-hmm. And then every other one after that was the same. So there's a prototype, the first type, which is, okay, this is the first of a new breed. Mm-hmm. But after that, the type continues. Yeah, they just replicate the same one. I've got to polish it, adjust it change its color but it's the same thing that they use you know um so it's a chip off the old block it's 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 a piece of the original you know whenever you replicate these things so um dna is the same yeah dna Mm. doesn't change you can turn on and off genes um, but the dna itself always replicates after its previous kind Mm. so you've got these patterns there in all sorts of ways um and you can replicate them but and and if you are true to type, using that as a phrase, then you're going to stick with the original. Yeah? So that's where type's coming from, but let's move over to the arc bit. Mm-hmm. So arc is an interesting um, sort of suffix for any kind of word. It's slapped on the front of things like archaeology, um, as well as archetypes, and what other arcs can you think of? I mean, there, there's... Arch nemesis? Or is that... Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so arch, arch rival, arch nemesis, oh, okay. it's the same spelling, the Archangel. same... Archangel. Archangel, okay, mm. so what have we got there? We've got a, a, a bunch of things. We've got this concept of just like an arch, you're going walking under an arch, it's over and above, mm. okay? Oh, okay? So that's the first thing, but also it's got this sense of being old, like really old. So archaeology is ancient stuff. So archaic. Archaic. When you go to to the archives, you're not expecting the latest editions of everything. You're expecting the old stuff in the Mm. archives, yeah. So, whereas archangels are the angels that are above all the other angels, Mm. yeah. Um, So, you've got a lot of these, and the archbishop, and the archduke, and the, yeah, it's the guy over and above, Mm -hmm. or old. So, it speaks really about the master, the, like, to the arch enemy, the arch criminal, the arch whatever, mm. <laughs> arch nemesis, that's the one you say. Cool. So it's like the master character mm-hmm. from which all the other types take their form. Mm. So when I speak about, when I spoke about this at the um, the global, what was it, the, the International Coach Federation Global Annual Conference, I was speaking with a former president of theirs and I'd introduce this and hardly anybody had heard of me there. Um, and it's the largest coaching body in the world. They've got 
hundreds of thousands of members and they have a global annual conference. And I was asked to be one of their catalysts coming in and introducing new ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, well, to do the new, we've got to do the old because the old has been forgotten and it's still here and you cannot escape it. We'll cover that off in a bit. <laughs> you cannot escape the influence of archetypes. Whether you know, The only issue is whether you know about them or not. They're there, right. they're present, they're real, and they are affecting the way that you're going about things all the time. Mm. So I presented it to these guys, and uh, several things came through um, in that presentation. The first thing is I say, look, you haven't never heard of these before? And I, I'll often say, okay, stick your hands up, guys. How many of you um, know the term archetype and could describe it to somebody? And about a third of the room puts their hands up. Mm. Okay, how many of you have heard the term, but you're not quite sure about the definition? About another third put their hand up. Um, and say, okay, how many of you uh, have never heard the term before, haven't a clue what we're talking about, and about another third put their hands up. And this right. is amongst coaches and psychologists and clinicians of different sorts, you mm. know, work with psychology. Um, and there's a lot of crazy stuff out there. I'll say to anybody, okay, if this is a new term to you, please don't put the term into Google, all right? You will, <laughs> you will get stuff coming at you from all sorts of directions, yeah? And some of it will be absolutely fine. A lot of Jung's work, who originally, he resurfaced the term, but he didn't originate it. People think, he, mm. think they originated with him and Freud. Freud and he argued about these characteristics that they saw in people's dreams. I've got a patient who... Um, who, who's had this character in the dream doing this stuff. Mm. Freud's like, yeah, I've seen someone doing exactly the same thing. I mean, you know, mine was a woman, yours was a man, but they're doing the same sort of thing. This is weird. How can they both have access to this model of characteristics that, that, that don't relate to the real world, mm. but represent issues in their deep psyche? Freud called it a, um, what did he call it? He called it a complex and said they've got this bit of their brains which is just all gnarled up and causing this complex and and Freud started um, so that was his analysis of it Jung said hold on I'm I think this is archetypal in that we need to look at there's an original form that we all have an awareness of Mm. and it's operating at different levels of the psyche and dreams often bring these things to the surface and I think that's what's going on because there's this collective unconscious and Freud went rubbish (laughs) Um, so so they had differing opinions um, about what this was all about but the fact that the dynamics were taking place in different patients of theirs and this was a hundred years ago um, was evident to both of them now they were using a term which was already in Greek understanding way back when I mean but the stuff that I've been looking up in terms of the history there's a guy called um, Philo of Alexandria he was a Hellenistic Jew so he was familiar with the Jewish traditions but he was also trained in the Greek uh, philosophies Mm. and he used to use the word archetype in all sorts of ways in his uh, his writings which survived to this day but there were others uh, at the same time as him speaking the same sort of language as well so it was common parlance to them to refer in, in as close as they got to psychology you know then they would talk about archetypal uh, characters yeah. uh, and, and forms that they saw present in their own lives and in those around them. So it's been around 2,000 years. That was 2,000 years yeah. back. Yeah. And so it's at least that far. We could go back to Plato another 400 years earlier and talk about his ideas, but uh, later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's interesting stuff. I mean, my kind of understanding of archetypes, which is pretty basic comes from familiarity with Jung and with kind of his readings of 
of religions and kind of comparing what was going on in the kind of lives of his patients and the dreams that they were coming to him with and him saying those kind of connect with these symbols that seem to be coming up over yeah. and again over again in these yeah. really old stories that are kind of cross-cultural yes um kind of narratives of or floods for example mm-hmm. which is a, a something that comes up in uh, in all sorts of creation myths this is something that really tripped me out when i was an undergrad student and I remember I was reading Ovid's Metaphor- Metamorphoses, a kind of Latin poem, and it begins with the story of flood coming and washing away the kind of like sinful form of mankind. And I was like, yeah. hang on, that's the Bible. Yeah. What the hell is that doing, <laughs> yeah. in, that uh, doing in Greco-Roman mythology? Yeah. And the tale of Gilgamesh as well, which was dug up in Sumerian texts, which is probably the oldest myth that exists, speaks about a global flood as well. Mm. So there are these things. Now, again, this is where... Let's not get into mythic literals now. You know about yeah. <laughs> spiral dynamics. Um, but there are certain things that are still prevalent in our psyche. Whether they're mythical or true, they're still with us. Mm. And that, I think, mm. is, is in a sense the most important thing. Because if they were just old and historic, well then, you know, does history affect us or not? <laughs> are we going to yeah. learn something from it or not? You can argue that both ways. Um, but the truth is, if we find that these patterns are still here and still prevalent, whether it's something like a flood, and is that a metaphor for clearing the decks and starting anew, well, and then what does that actually mean for us? Well, we can go deep into that. Or are we going to start looking at, so there's a, a there's archetypal events, you know, creation in itself is an archetypal event in a way, mm. uh, because it's something which keeps happening in different arenas. Um the phoenix is an archetypal symbol, you know, mm. something which burns down to the ground, but out from the ashes, something new appears as well. So there are these symbols that are, occur throughout different uh, cultures. Um, the the work of Joseph Campbell, who wrote the book, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, mm. spoke about the hero's journey, where in every culture he found this same pattern of that. It's usually male, but it's not exclusively male, where the guy is just a nobody and then faces a certain number of challenges and then he gets a kind of quest in his heart and he starts going after it and then he starts facing some battles and then he goes to this level and then there's this person appears who's always like his arch nemesis um, Mm. and he has to work out how do I deal with this and I'm not enough and all these things and he found these patterns it's like actually all these stories had the same sort of seven or eight key milestones Mm. on the way so he just called it the hero's journey and he mapped it from all sorts of characters throughout history and we still see it playing out you know in its broad form here, here today. Yeah, but even in, like, modern movies, you have, like, the sort of general, like, you know, zero to hero sort of story that plays out even in, like, not, I mean, not just in, like, say, superhero movies, but even in just sort of any narrative that involves, like, saving stuff or one individual character, like, yeah. discovering that they have all this powers or potential. Yeah. Um, like, you know, even, I don't know, to pick a completely random one, say, like, sort of Scott Pilgrim, You've seen that movie or read those graphic novels is you know it's kind of a classic hero's journey and mm-hmm. has the same kind of like hero faces the challenges kind of triumphs over them but then at some point like it faces some huge problem and stops believing himself and then has to start believing in himself again yeah. and like so you know even this stuff that's it's basically been around for thousands of years but it's still happening again and again today yeah. Yeah. So there are these general patterns, the hero's journey. I mean, George Lucas took Campbell's work and he was particularly inspired by uh, 
Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette, who took the um, four key archetypal characters, the king, the lover, the magician, help, what was the other one? <laughs> um, and um, he basically took those and said, from a male sort of development and maturity point of view, there are these four key archetypes. Um, and um, he sort of tracked the development, but he also then or they introduced the idea of an overheated state or an overinflated state or an underinflated state. So there's some really interesting dynamics there that you'll also see in story form as well. Mm. Um, and I've taken that, and that was a, a key point for me. I took that model and started to work with that along with the, um, the, the kind of practical stuff that I've done with people. I said, I like the model. And I did actually start using that with people. But then I began to say, well, hold on, there's a few distinctions that I think are necessary in order to make this work for everybody, especially the female part of the world, because they were focused on the male psyche. Right. And they said, oh, but this isn't exclusively for men. It's like, yeah, but it's highly male biased. <laughs> and so how do we look at that? And so there's left brain and right brain stuff that we will go into, uh, because that's really important. I don't think it's so important to divide between male and female, but I think it is important to divide between this notional idea of left and right brain. Mm. I know that's been challenged, but I've seen some brain scans which do show that certain types of thoughts originate on the left-hand side and certain types of thought originate on the right-hand side. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think, so we've kind of spoken a bit about what is an archetype and sort of like the history of the idea, but perhaps we could talk a little bit about sort of some, what are some of the most common patterns or the most common figures that come up again and again, so we can actually yeah. really flesh this out for anybody who's listening. So I, I must admit, I, there are some things I get geeky about, um, mm. and these distinctions with characters is one of those areas. Um, and I must admit, I get annoyed when I see certain people propose, uh, putting forward um, certain characters and saying they're archetypes. And I'm mm. like, first of all, they just ain't old enough. <laughs> you know, my first thing is like a New York cabbie is not an archetype. <laughs> so talk about the archetypal sort of businesswoman. Okay, maybe, yeah, there were, back in Roman times, there were businesswomen, you know, but mm. that was uncommon. Maybe you could call that an archetype, but not a New York cabbie. <laughs> That's a stereotype, <laughs> okay? Mm. So you've got to separate, is it old enough? Has it been around since time immemorial? That's my first test. Uh, for is it an archetype or is it a stereotype or even a prototype or something new? Um, and so that's the first thing that I'll look at. I, with the model that was developed around the book Team Me, mm. um, it was great because, uh, you know, people will say the most important book that you'll ever read is the one that you write. And for me, that the exercise of putting that book together, which took me about nine months, um, helped me to sort of really think through the issues many of which I, I had a good framework, but it actually then helped me to really hammer out the detail and the depth to all of these mm. characters. Um, but the thing that did become clear very early on is that whatever people will propose in terms of names for archetypes, first of all, in a sense, the name isn't so much what's important, but the kind of energy is. So you mm -hmm. can call it the king or the sovereign or the boss or the captain all the same thing you know i don't mm. care i call that character the sovereign <laughs> um but it's you know you can give it a, a whole bunch of different names but for all of those you know that there are common characteristics so the sovereign for example the most important thing is they are commanding mm. they have their own sense of authority whether it's been given to them or they just said 
this is what I'm doing and I don't care what anybody else says. They have an authority um, and they will then use that authority to command and control. Now, there's different ways of commanding and controlling, but they will uh, enforce their expectations. And you either choose to go with it or not if they've got authority over you because they are the boss. You know, if they can hire and fire you, then, well, then you either work with them or you quit and you mm. move somewhere else. I think the but, example um, you used when we first spoke was of the Queen kind of yeah. delegating... Yeah. Yeah. deciding what people do without actually doing anything really herself. Yeah, so when there are degrees of all of these archetypes in each of us, mm. and we will do a little exercise where we can just sort of scribble on some, some, some paper and we'll you know, come out with, well, how much of these characters is in each one of us. So mm. I've got an online tool. So you toddle over to um, teamme.app. You mm. can get online and fill in a, a, a bunch of questions, and then you get the most dominant the two most dominant archetypes were presented back to you but the truth is the system's actually measuring six different archetypes and it'll show you where you are with each of them so we're focusing on the sovereign at the moment yeah. everybody's got a degree of that sovereign yeah you might not feel you've got a large area of responsibility but the bigger that it is then the more that that sovereign has to step up yeah. for some teenage kids it's just their bedroom and they're responsible for sorting out their bedroom you know uh, mm. and that's their realm of authority but then they have exams at school uh, well then it's their business to take control of their minds to take control of their pencil case to take control of what it is they need to do so there's a little bit of responsibility that they've got you know mm. but as they grow up that area of responsibility expand. grows and grows and grows so like say Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping might be the sort of most intense example of a sort of sovereign manifesting itself in someone yeah. who is alive today. Yeah. Or maybe even like anyone who's at the top of a very big company, say yeah. Jeff Bezos even. like Absolutely, yeah. And so you will always get a mix of these characters. And so the sovereigns are never just, you know, kingly or queenly. They, they will project themselves and behave in slightly different ways because of the other mix of archetypes. So if you take Steve Jobs, for example, clearly strong with Sovereign. He comes in, he controls the show, he says, right, getting rid of all those products, <laughs> you know, fire the people who fired him and, and then start working <laughs> with, a, you know, this is the vision. Mm. The first thing, mm. vision, the, the vision is the inspirational thing. Yeah, so they set the vision. Uh, we'll talk about the mystic and their view on vision as well. But the, they operate through a, a delegated power uh, to, in order to do the sovereign thing. But one of the most important things they do is they set a new vision. You know what it's like in politics if a party just hasn't even got a clear vision. Yeah, yeah that's how you lose Very quickly, <laughs> everybody just loses confidence. It's like, we don't even know what you stand for anymore. You know, mm. where, where are you taking us? Mm. You don't follow a leader if you don't know where they're taking you. You know, so the vision is crucial. He, uh, Jobs came back into Apple and he gave, the first thing he did was a new vision. Guys, this is what we stand for, and this is what we're going for. Um, and boy, did he turn that whole situation around. But there's another archetype that was really very strong with Jobs, which was the mystic. Mm. And mm. so we can go into, we will go through all of these, but whilst we're on the subject, mm. uh, the mystic is the innovator. They can dream big, and they break the rules. So the sovereign is all about maintaining order and keeping rules. But the mystic is just like, stuff that order <laughs> let's create something new you know mm. what if what if what if is the is the kind of clarion call of the mystic you know and i have a dream mm. yeah 
You've heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> so there'll be some people who are strong with Sovereign and strong with Mystic, and some will be slightly stronger on Mystic, and some yeah. others will be slightly stronger on Sovereign. And there's a mix of the other archetypes as well. Whereas Bill mm-hmm. Gates, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs would regularly get together and have little conflats, you know, even whilst they were pitted against each other in the computer world as they kind of growing their businesses together. Um, but there's, and I've got this classic picture of the two of them sitting there. And Gates was sovereign sage. He's looking much more at the facts. The emotions are not part of his equation. He's mm-hmm. much more of a, almost like a Mr. Spock type of character, you know, or Sherlock Holmes. No mm. one can get close to them emotionally, but they're very factually based. Like the rational and it's objective. all rational. Mm. So you've got this mm-hmm. shot of Ga- uh, Gates there, perfectly symmetrical, hands together doing this classic thing from the, the sage. They're just sitting there going, mm, yes. Whereas Jobs is just like this. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Totally asymmetrical. Yeah. Kind of waving like hands the, around all over the place like... and dreaming big and, and getting emotionally tied in. That's trash, you know, just, you know, we ought to be thinking this and thinking mm. that. Yeah. Whereas oh, Gates cool. is a lot more it would be highly logical. <laughs> it would be highly logical, Captain, if we pursued this based on the evidence that we have. And so, yeah, I'm being comical, but you can hear that the characteristics of each of these characters is like, yeah, I know that character. Yeah, yeah straight exactly. away you recognize it. And that's why this works in boardrooms and this works in high maximum security prisons. I've had the opportunity to be in both Ooh, places. Wow. Um, and you, you know, you can speak archetypal language and you can get a conversation going instantly. You know, Ooh. what if we were more warrior about the way we went about this? I don't need to really explain that. But you know, you, the details, yes. But in terms of the energy that you're bringing to the situation, I don't yeah. need to explain. So, well, hang on, what's this warrior person? You know, it's like, you know that warrior person. You yeah. know, tell me one time in your past when you just had to get it done. You know, like life or death, get it done. And people mm. will just go, and they're beginning to feel it already. <laughs> you know, fire. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Like, just, yeah. Like, get out of my way. Up. You know, Energy, I'm yeah. going to make this happen. And they don't, warriors don't care for people when they're on a mission. It's like, that's the one thing I'm going to do. And if mm. people are getting in the way, get out of my way, you know, it's just do it. Just do uh, yeah. it as the warriors. And like even when you say it, like like we should be more warrior about this. Like you don't even even without I think that statement on its own, ninety nine percent of people who heard it will understand exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. With like you know, just with the abstract concept of like warrior, but then yeah. being warrior about something. Everyone just intrinsically knows mm-hmm. like, oh, that means being like gung ho and like not compromising and just like absolutely going for it. And every it's it's very, very easy to conceptualize. Yeah. And it gets you in the gut. Yeah. Mm. It accesses something down here. Whereas to go into a maximum security prison and to say, we're going to do a Myers Briggs profile on you. <laughs> mm. We've got sixteen sixteen different types to consider here and I've got these questions for you. You know, so in this situation, would you prefer to be this or that? You know, like, the guy's going to be going, <laughs> Whereas if you just to say, you know, just say, okay, you know, so who's 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 the king here? And everybody looks over at Jake and, you know, yeah. okay, you know who's ruling this. Is that what you did? Whatever, whatever the delegated authority <laughs> is. It's, to be honest, you can tell by the way they sit. Yeah. And usually, back to the queen thing, um... A mature sovereign is the stillest person in the room. 
Cue everyone trying to be as tall as possible. <laughs> no, <laughs> not not frightened, not freeze and and faint, yeah, but, but it's the person who's just sitting there, just they're kind of looking around. But that's that. And yeah. then if they want anything done, they've already built their team around them. So yeah. they're just like Harry, just nah. <laughs> and that's kind of it. It's the slightest. There's no effort in the mature sovereign. Um, Later, we'll talk about shadow archetypes, Mm -hmm. because any one of these archetypes can go into this, what I call, overheated state, but there's also a frozen state, so it's worth us exploring those, because when you you see those dynamics, you then begin to understand why certain people uh, behave the way they do under pressure. Um, So we can look at that in a moment, but let's get clear on which the archetypes are. We've talked about the sovereign, Mm -hmm. we've talked about the mystic, we've mentioned the sage. Mm -hmm. Uh, the others that I work with then, so to go through, there's a specific order to, to the way that I teach this. So it's the sovereign, then the warrior, then the sage, and then it's the mystic, the lover, and the jester. Yeah. And every one of us has got something of those characters inside of us, and we can call on them whenever it's necessary. And what you'll also find is that even if you're if it's sage, but the jester's reasonably high, you'll find you're doing the sage thing first. But once you've filled your quota of, I've done enough sageness today, <laughs> I've looked at enough facts, I've got things into shape and order, mm-hmm. and I'm confident about the, the factual, evidence-based calculations and all the rest, mm-hmm. uh, I've got to a certain level of truth, you know, whatever it is that I'm establishing here, especially accountants, great view of sages you know they have to be factual they have to be cool-headed no you don't want to bring emotions into your finances if you've got an accountant you know an emotional accountant is a liability you want somebody who will coolly look at the figures and say this is what the numbers say yeah any data analyst the same strikes me as being kind of almost computational yeah yeah it's it's purely rational um and yeah there's some of these you know people say that he's just like a walking computer you know yeah, I've known people like that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. something something that exists out there in the world that some mm-hmm. people express express exactly that. And then also the same with like with all the ones you mentioned. I can think of people I know who I'm mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, that person has a lot of like you know mystic like qualities. Or oh, that guy's a total sage. Like yeah, mm. yeah. And we see it in every sitcom. We see yeah. it in every movie. And the bigger the movie, the more they're able to put in these mixes. You know? mm. So um, when I just work with the power profiles for people, which gives me the most immediate view, mm. um, but it's a little bit reductionist, but it does, it still helps to, to get something moving with these guys, is to work out well, which is the strongest and which is the kind of supporting, so a leading character and a supporting character. Yeah? Um, and when we do that, there's even of just those, when you're working with six archetypes, you've got 30 different variations to play with, mm. 30 different character types. But it, I can instantly then say, okay, so this is what you're strong at, these will be your weak points, and these are the relationships you'll find easy, and these are the ones you'll find difficult, mm. and these are the ones you'll gravitate towards, whether helpfully or not helpfully. <laughs> and when you're under pressure, this is your likely way of performing. You know, so these are the things which instantly before I, I mean, this is, this is my greatest game is that I'll go into either a team or a, you know, founder or an entrepreneur will come along, get, I'll see their profiles, they fill in these questions, they fill in the questions. I've got my view of where the archetypes are and I'll say, okay, so just 
to say, give me, give me a two minutes on your role. You're, so I'm the head of the company and we're in logistics and we do this and this and that and the other. Mm. You got any teams? Yeah, I got teams of this. I got, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. Geographically, blah, blah, blah. fine. Let me tell you how you operate with your team. Let me tell you how you are in meetings. Let me tell you how you are um, in terms of which sort of levels of the organization you engage with. Let me tell you your highest priorities. Let me tell you. And I basically, for 15 minutes, I can tell them all sorts of stuff about them just from this profile mm. wow. to which they go okay and once or twice they'll say well I wouldn't quite word it that way I'll talk, you know and so there's slight different mm. languages because yeah. this is me reading stuff um, but essentially I can I can play back to them once they've done that profile and all they've done is answer a kind of is this very much you or is this not so much you five degrees of question and that's all available online for people can fill that in yeah. but it's mm. the interpretation of that that as you get used to these characters what are the dynamics when somebody is strong with sovereign and state sage mm. Um, mm. and all the world's a stage um, and then with the others being lower you know, but what if the, the, the lover is strong with the sovereign? Well, then you end up with a Richard Branson type character. <laughs> so can we flesh out a little bit more about the kind of lover and the uh, jester? Yeah, we haven't gone there, have we? Yeah, so yeah. let's do that. Um, the lover is not just the romantic type, the Romeo and Juliet lover type. Um, it's the person who cares about people. Okay. And so other archetypes, people will talk about the carer and then the sort of the romantic and all the rest. Well, I kind of lump them all together with that person who's able to tap into that. Um, it's a passionate place. It's an empathetic place. It's a place where they care about others. Yeah. Um, and essentially, those, so those are the people that in a, in a board meeting, if you've got anybody who's strong on love and they don't tend to get through to the board level, when they're too strong on that, they tend to get pushed off. It's either HR or it's out the door or it's <laughs> pushed them down. Because they, they, you know, with a patriarchal sort of system, we tend to end up with the guys being elevated who are more commanding and get things done. Um, so there's an interesting dynamic. Um, but the anybody who's uh, steering a company or any body of people needs to recognize who the lover types are because they're the ones who are going to be bringing harmony to what might just get disparate or factional. Yeah, that they're the ones that will bring people together. They hate it when there's strife in the room. Mm. They, they just, they want to run away, but they will, depending on how much warrior is in them, they will also then say, actually, let's make this happen. Let's come together. Mm. You know, but if they're weak on warrior, they're not even going to put their energy into harmonizing. They want harmony, but they won't enforce it. Okay, <laughs> yeah. The warrior enforces yeah. And so this is where the mix is important you to recognize yeah. that both the warrior and the lover are driven by passion. Mm. The sovereign and the mystic are both driven by power, one through delegated power and one through influence, which isn't always in, uh, delegated, but they have a remarkable ability to put things together, oh. uh, to connect people in a way to, to influence outcomes without necessarily... So sometimes the mystics are not very high in the organization, or if they're on the board, they're not kind of the key players, not often. Mm. But it depends. Oh. It depends. depends on how much innovation is, is uh, elevated within the organization. Um, and the last two, the jester and the sage, operate through perception. So they're mm. both known as clever. They both have the ability to take words in particular and situations and they kind of dissect them. And mm. the sage does it for learning. Oh, and the jester will Jester do it does for it like... for laughter. laughter? <laughs> <laughs> One 
one study's history because it's yeah, it's it's important. We can draw lessons from it. The other yeah. one does it because it's quite hysterical. <laughs> yeah. uh, and this is why things like Blackadder are brilliant because yeah. the jester gets a chance to pull apart history and laugh at it. Yeah. And then they went, okay, if it's not you know Queenie and Elizabeth the First, well, let's go up to the First World War. Or let's go to you can take it to any moment in history and let yeah. the jester go to town on it. You know, it's Ooh. amazing that that kind of that comedy, that energy of laughter seems to be so important in human cultural dynamics. Yeah. And it's really hard to kind of understand exactly where it comes from or why. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think animals do it particularly, but humans, we we love to mock things and to see the absurdity and the yeah. irony in situations. Yeah. And that's where the jester comes from. So mm. um, jesters, of course, like all of these characters, if they get overheated they can become quite nasty with people and they use their humour to tear people down and mm. to build themselves up. So they just Ooh. become the idiot in that situation where self-id is, is elevated. They do it things their own way. Um, and they don't consider the, the, the feelings of other people in particular. So they'll often, you'll see this, you, know, you go to some comedy night, and there'll always be some person who has a, a big chunk of their act is tearing down. You know, And I think the people generally now just think, we can do without that, actually. You know, it's fine to, yeah. to fine to, to poke a bit of fun, but if it goes a bit too far, if it's just tearing down, it's like actually, I just don't feel good in that sort of environment. You know, so, yeah. Okay, skip that and go for the yeah the clean yeah. comedians, the, the guys who are actually you come away and you actually feel really built up and you're buzzing with a with a, a good sense of fun. You didn't go around tearing others down to do so. Um, so jesters can swing into that space. And particularly when their show isn't going very well, they'll start pulling on all this, pulling a whole heap of sexual in and innuendos, and then also to bring in criticism of others. And that's yeah. when they're starting to get desperate. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the cheap yeah. shots, basically. It is. It's yeah, cheap shots it's just trying cheap. to... And it, but, it, you know, it's like, oh, go, sorry, and lose that. Not so, the first time. But, um, yeah, so... And the mature ones have got this, this, this sense of confidence and trust in themselves and in their material. They're not trying too hard, you know, mm. even the jester. But still, the jester will always be trying to surprise and delight, you know. So there are some people that go more on the entertainment side. Uh, it's interesting that um, you can map these archetypes to days of the week, which is a, a deep thing here. Uh, did Whoa. we talk about this earlier, where you can actually, yeah, really interesting thing. You were talking about archetypal stuff going back. Have you ever studied the names of the days of the week and what they represent? I'm aware that they're one of the days is named after Thor. Yes, that is true. So I, I think that's Thursday. It and is. so I'm going to assume Thursday that's the warrior Thursday. day. Absolutely the warrior day. Okay, so Monday is moon day. Yes, it is. And Sunday is Sunday. So I guess, the, I mean, I don't know, I mean, moon? <laughs> Who, who's moon? Uh, well, okay, the interesting thing is here is that every culture has acknowledged planets against the days of the week um the spooky thing is that they okay so there's a there's there's places where this comes together there's a couple of places where a bit of chinese whispers has has, has influenced things especially Mm -hmm. interesting enough with the chinese who look at the Mm -hmm. elements the five elements as being the five days of the week and the weekend it's still funnily enough the sun and the moon 
So why should the Chinese and the Japanese and the Tibetans and the Aztecs and the ancient American Indians and the Greeks and the Romans and the, uh, the Nordics and all the rest, yeah. where they still had their Norse gods, but they still acknowledged the sun on Sunday and the moon on Moonday. And every culture that has tried to disrupt the seven-day week has gone back to the seven-day week, not just because of internationalism, even before internationalism was important. Yeah. Yeah, the French tried to do it after the revolution. The French revolution. The, the, the uh, Russians tried to do it. The Chinese tried to do it. They all reverted back to the um, the seven-day week. Oh, that's very interesting. You've yeah, got that's the pretty... sun on Sunday, you've got the moon on mo- uh, Monday. Monday. Then the, the French is the easiest way to remember the rest. So you've got Mardi. Mardi. Which planet? Mars. Mm-hmm. You've got oh. Mercredi. Mercury, love. Um, wait, love? No? We'll, we'll look at the, what those meanings are in a moment. We're going deeply off course. Here, oh, no, but wait, it's, wait, it's, actually, is. it's archetypal. Yeah, it is archetypal. Mm. Um, so you've got Mercredi, you've got Vendredi. Well, actually, with Jeudi first. Oh, which is Thursday. Which is Jupiter. It is which Jupiter. Is sovereign. Not quite, but oh. I'll play. Yeah, I'll play back a, a couple of things just to round this up because we've mm. segued into something. But it is actually interesting mm. that in my studies I came out with six archetypes, and they do, funnily enough, map to six of the days of the week. Um, and then there is a there's an overall, but there, okay. So there's a seventh day. <laughs> I want to there? map this. There is a seventh day, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, and the easiest way to think about that is rainbows, but we'll go there in a moment. Uh-huh. <laughs> then it's unicorns, <laughs> and this is weird because this is this is probably where it seems like the wheels are falling off, and you think we've gone into some really spooky stuff here. But let's just yeah. push through with the days of the week to start okay. with. Yeah. Jeudi, then vendredi, oh, and then Venus. That would be Venus. The, the lover. Now that's an interesting one because you would think so. I guess that's the but general let me, association. Let, yeah, let me yeah. play with one other thing around that because then this is where the, what things have become is not necessarily what they originally were. Oh okay. yeah, of course. Now there's always places at which some of this will will separate a little bit, um, and I've uh, I keep asking myself, am I trying to just fit these things together? I saw a pattern. Does that mean I'm trying to squash it in for the rest? And I'm still open to to interpretation and, and challenge on some of those things. Mm-hmm. But I'll explain a few of these things in a minute. Um, and the last one is Samadhi. Samadhi, yeah. Which is Saturn. It is Saturn. I'm, so I would guess that was the sage, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. Well, I could see it being the mystic as well. Like, mm-hmm. there's another one though. Saturnalia was mm-hmm. a big feast, an agricultural feast. It was the feast of harvest, huh. and so Saturn worshipped on Saturday. Um, was related to feasts and entertainment. Yeah. Okay. Now, Saturn's an interesting character in mythology because he's really stern, and yet he also spawned the feasts. So Ooh. it's a kind of interesting dichotomy between these two sort of poles that exist in the same character. So you've got Saturday, which is interesting, um, but the entertainment side of things, it's like, we've done all our work for the week, let's party. Okay. Of course, yeah, it's the beginning of the weekend. So it's a bit strange to think, yes, Saturn isn't normally put forward in that way. But I'll often say to people, if, if the board members are starting to say, we don't need any of the jester here, he's of no use. And my first thought is, 
then let's take Saturday out of the week. <laughs> and yeah, now that's, that's a mystic's way of transcending a situation and, and coming at it with a metaphor. Yeah, mm. mystics always go for metaphors, but then even sages can get that. Yeah, mm. sages work with knowledge, mystics work with understanding. And they're two. They're kind of related, but they're oh. actually two different dynamics. Yeah, of course, because you can you can know everything. If you don't understand any of it, like it, what is it worth? Yeah, and if you don't know much, but you have a great level of understanding, you can do an awful lot. You can mm. transcend and transform. Mm. So the watchwords of the of the dynamics of the mystic is to transcend and transform. They come in with a different perspective. Mm. Yeah. And that makes me think of that kind of computation metaphor again, right? Sort of like knowledge is being able to almost use knowledge that's already there and kind of churn, yeah, make equations work and roll off things that have been discovered. But machine learning, other type of thinking, <laughs> which is sort of creative synthesizing thought, like yeah, being able to identify yeah. a pattern and go this and this go together, and everybody else goes no, yeah. no, you're mad, yeah. <laughs> but that's where you, that's what innovation. Yeah. And some people would invent whole new industries, you know. Um, it's, and, and this is where, I mean, even with, with, with you know, the Model T Ford, when Ford came out with his, his first idea of a car, and that classic line, if I'd asked the people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. <laughs> he had a different way of looking mm. at, hold on, these mechanisms and this engine thing, well, we could put wheels on that. Yeah. <laughs> and as long as we got something called a brake, <laughs> you know, we could do something with this, you know. Mm. So he comes out with his first one. I mean, there were cars before him, of course. Yeah. He wasn't the inventor of the car, but he, was, he had the idea of the mass production. So he added yeah. his sage thing to it. Society. But the first thing he had was the vision. Mm. He had the vision mm -hmm. of that, and then he implemented it. And he, he knew he, he was sage enough to know that he needed people brighter than him on the case. It was a great, great big court case. They were trying to tear him apart in the media. Um, and I'm sure he wasn't the nicest of all characters to work with, but you know, they tried to tear him apart, and they were trying to sort of throw questions at him to see whether he was intelligent or thick. Not really. <laughs> and they were literally throwing questions about, who was the 13th president of the United... And he just, at some point, just said, this is entirely irrelevant. What you need to know is that um, when I don't have the answer to a question, I've got... 13 buzzers on my desk or whatever it was and I press the button and the guy comes into the room I ask him because I have people working for me who do have the answers and mm. that's how I run this company uh, you know? yeah. so <laughs> it was kind of irrelevant because as a sovereign he doesn't need to know everything he yeah. just needs to bring in the right things at the right time to make sure that vision actually happens mm. yeah. so Can we go back to the days of the week stuff my word how did we get off the days of the week <laughs> So how deep do we go on this? Um, let's. There's a there's a color coding to the archetypes that mm. I've never actually explained. Um, mm. I shall do that sometime. I will do it here now, <laughs> um, where actually people think about the colors of the rainbow. How many colors are there in a rainbow? <laughs> so. Hey. People talk about it's the seven really... colors of the rainbow. Now, the truth is, though, have it's you ever looked at a rainbow? There's kind of infinite colors in a rainbow. There are, and so it. it's you can kind of divide it up whichever way you want. But yeah. in truth, I've never seen anybody look at a rainbow and go, there's the red, there's the orange, there's the yellow, there's the green, there's the blue, there's the indigo, and there's the violet. Yeah. It's just purple, for goodness sake. Yeah, it's just exactly. One yeah, the sort of blue, <laughs> indigo, violet. You could just say... 
Blue and purple, yeah. Blue yeah. and purple is the way to go. Now, that simplifies it. Now, what mm. happens if you show them all at the same time, though? You end up with white. White, okay. yeah. Okay. That's Sunday. White is Sunday. All of the others are kind of wrapped up into the culmination of the six archetypes. So there is a seventh, but there isn't a seventh. There's a seventh in the sense that if you put the others together, you mm -hmm. will end up with all the other colors of the rainbow. Squash them together, you get the white light. Okay, so that's right. kind of like, I mean, would you say that that is in some senses analogous to someone who has a more or less, who has no archetype stronger than any other in any way? And so they would come out as just non-archetyped and that would, in a way... So they just... Bright and shiny like a lighthouse. And, yeah. and in a sense, that is true. We've all got flavors, and you can see it from a color point of view. I did even wonder mm. at some point whether it was worth creating the six as different colors and then saying, okay, well, what would that do if you literally had colors red for the sovereign? You know, then you'd have uh, yellow, which is the lover, then you'd have orange for the mystic. And I'll, I'll explain why that's all put together. It seems to jump around. Mm. Ooh, I'm going to throw in something else here. Okay. Um, I will. I'll, I'll round that up. The colors are quite specific, um, but they do match to the days of the week, and then the archetypes match to the days of the week as well. So let's jump back to things like Thor, the warrior. Okay, mm. so Jupiter was associated with Thor, according to Tacitus, who is the Roman historian who started looking at these Germanic tribes and these Nordic tribes that we're now beginning to invade. Mm. Oh, they've got different gods. Oh, it's funny that because we're looking at Mercury as one of their gods, well, that ties back to you know one of our guys um, quite specifically. So, um, and then they've got Jupiter, and then they've got Mars, and they were trying to say, well, how do these guys fit with with ours? Um, mm. But actually, the the tie can be seen between the names that we have in the days of the week. It's funny, isn't it, that the days of the week that the pagans gave in terms of Mars and Mercury and um, help. <laughs> Thor. So, okay, oh, I'm Thor, jumping yeah. between the two here. I ought to yeah, have them all listed yeah, yeah, yeah. here. When, when I write this on the board, both, it's easier. Basically, yeah. It just so happens that according to Tacitus' writings, you know, Thor and Jupiter were the same god. Yeah. And Thursday and Jeudi happened to be the same day. Oh, yeah. Okay? And Tu and... Um, Mardi, so you've got Mars and you've got Tew, and they just happen to be same the, the same day. Oh. And, they, and, and Tacitus so said the, it's the same. So in other words, it's tribes like, had come up with the same ordering of the week, and the ordering of the different the characters, characters were the same with the days, and they matched up with what Tacitus said. These, in terms of their characteristics, mm. they're the same. Now we think about Mars as being the god of war, but actually it's not so much the case. Um, oh. And so Jupiter, according to Tacitus, Jupiter matched uh, to Thor. Thor, yeah. Okay. You think Thor, god of war, Mars, god of war, but it's actually, no, go back to the days of the week and you'll find the original understanding. Mm. Later, we've turned men are from Mars and women from Venus. Yeah. <sighs> nice little phrase, <laughs> but it doesn't match up to the original understanding of the original oh, okay. characters. Modern yeah. invention. It's, it's a modern invention. So we could decipher that further, but I'm, thinking, I'm just pulling out a few of those. Mm. Cool. Back to our rainbow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Start at the top. The first archetype is the sovereign. Mm -hmm. Red is actually the color of wisdom, and it's the, it's what the, the, arc, the 
sovereign archetype is all about mm-hmm. that actually matches to Monday. See, I kind of associate red with a more kind of like almost the the color of anger. Mm-hmm. Is that which you would associate with warrior, warrior, and Thor? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Think of it in terms of power. A lot of people think of red as a power color. Okay, but that doesn't really reflect the sort of power that you see in nature. When you scatter seeds on the ground, there is this determined, unstoppable life that breaks through anything and everything, works together, dominates the environment, has this sort of passion inside it to dominate and grow. You can't stop it growing unless you try and poison it. Mm. It has an innate ability and a desire to grow and grow and grow. Mm. So when you start looking at it that way, it's in nature. Well, then green kind of fits that a lot better than red. If you're trying to sum up what is that drive that's behind nature. Unstoppable force of life. And this is where it's interesting that, you know, we've come to associate certain things. And and there's there's all sorts of people who do colour psychology. And they'll always use red as the the dominant, pushy, you know, go-getic sort of thing. But I have Mm -hmm. a slightly different view of it. And Mm. this is where... But I had to come to terms with that myself. It's like the culture that we're in today seems to think red is that warrior thing. So why doesn't it match up with the colours of the rainbow, which seem to match up with the days of the week? And so there's these patterns of seven, which is what I'm coming down to. And the more I explore it, the more fun it gets. Though, to pick a really random analogy, like, on the one hand, we kind of think of red as violent and bad. But actually, and this 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 is the silliest thing, imagine a traffic light Red is stop. Yeah. Red is giving you an order. Yeah. yeah. Red is like halt. Like I am in charge. Like you know. <laughs> yeah. Whereas green is like go. Green is like flowing through. Green is like movement. Green is like energy. Yeah. You know. Nice. So in a weird way, sort of the way we at least on a traffic light lines yeah. up a lot better with. It's there. And red's it's also there. emergency. Pay attention to this, yeah. which is pure sovereign. Yeah. Right. It is sovereign. The sovereign will say. This is what's acceptable, and this is not acceptable. This is the border. The this red is the boundary. line. The mm. red line. Yeah. This yeah. is what the sovereign does. Now, it's the, the warrior enforces that dictate, but it's the sovereign who draws the line. So when hmm. I'm working with people in relationships, I'm always looking for who's setting the rules mm-hmm. and how mm. much are they setting the rules. So victims and slaves have a hard time um, dealing with clear boundaries they keep giving way Mm. yeah they keep giving way so the slave makes no decisions of their own they have Mm. they're told what to do yeah so that's kind of the opposite of the sovereign yeah a deflated sovereign and the deflated sovereign is actually the the um the deflated or the frozen state i call it interesting then that also the warrior wow we're jumping around here aren't we um (laughs) It's maybe that should Let's wrap back. up the week, days of the week color stuff. And then Thank we can you for keeping me on track. Yeah. This is too much mystic here. I'm going yeah. off. <laughs> well, I love the mystic the stuff. Let's, let's wrap that up. Good. Um, so what we have with the, with the days of the week, interesting that all these cultures seem to talk about these, the same order of planets across the board, although we've got the elements. And there's an interesting tie of the elements, but I'm still working on that one. Mm. But the... The, the Latin view and the kind of Norse view is exactly the same. And mm-hmm. at least every culture of the world acknowledges the sun first and the moon second. 
Yeah. So Ooh. it's interesting that the moon has no light of its own. It purely reflects the sun. Yeah. Um, and interesting that of the seven archangels, ooh, arc again. Yes. <laughs> seven of them. The first day of the week, which represents, um, the first one is, is Michael. And Michael means who is like God. The divine is wrapped up in the white light of the first day of the week. The mm-hmm. second one is called Jehudiel. And his name means God is my light. The moon oh, light so the reflection. is the reflection. Yeah. He has no light of his own. Interesting, that. Yeah. And the other seven actually match up as well. And whilst we're sticking with Hebrew um, uh, understanding here, I looked at, they have this thing called the menorah, which was from the temple. Mm-hmm. So in the temple, they have seven... Uh, candles. It's a candle with seven branches. Seven branches, yeah. yeah. They added it to nine later. Interesting enough, they found nine planets, but there were seven pl- uh-huh. known planets originally. Um, and I looked at the the order of them, and you have the sun, which is the the big one in the middle, and then you have all these other ones. And um, it, it wasn't Philo, one of the maybe it was Philo of Alexandria who said they actually represent the planets, the known planets at that time. So you've got uh-huh. Mercury in there, and Jupiter, and Mars, and Venus, etc., and Saturn. And so I was looking at that, and I was saying, yeah, but the order doesn't make sense. You've got the sun in the middle and then, you know, Mercury's here and the moon's here and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And then <laughs> I found another text which said, yeah, but the priest would light them in this order. Oh. And I was absolutely gobsmacked. He lights them in the order of the days of the week according to the planets that we've associated with the days of the week. Uh-huh. Wow. So he goes, the sun, the moon, (laughs) and then it's Mars, and then it's um, Mercury, and then it's Jupiter, and then it's Saturn. And you think, why? (laughs) I could dig it up. uh, So it came, Philo of Alexandria spoke about the association with the planets Mm. and which ones they were in this order. Mm. But then there was another text which spoke about the tradition of... um, which a Jewish tradition about the order with which they were lit. Because to start with, I thought, I wish that would have worked out, but the order just doesn't make any sense. Mm. And then it's like, no, 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 but I was counting one, two, three, <laughs> four, five, so, or, you know, I, I, and, and so there is these, the point is, there's something running really, really deep, which goes way back in time. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so, you know, what does that mean for us? <laughs> We've looked at the patterns. I, ha- I know I haven't gone through all the colors of the rainbow, but it, it matches up beautifully. Mm. That, um, that if you look at the, the association with the archetypes and the kind of godlike characters that are matched into the days of the week, um, and then the colors of the rainbow I now use, although I don't speak of them, I just have, um, but I don't normally speak about them. But whenever I see, whenever I depict the sovereign, I'll very often put the red color behind that. And it's mm. a subliminal message. And the warrior is the green, and the, the lover is the yellow. Um, and so, and again, if you think, well, this is kind of jumping, you know, order, it doesn't follow my order of the left brain characters, mm-hmm. which is the sovereign and then the warrior, and then the sage. Those are left brain types. Rational, um, you know, following the, the evidence, following their um, a, a clear process-driven way of thinking. It's a linear, right? A linear way of looking at things compared to the other three that are right brain. So the mystic, 
the lover and the jester. More emotional, but it's not just emotional ways, any kind of rational and emotional, sort of that, but a lot more creative, mm. thinking out of the box. Synthetic, associative. Yeah. Associative is a better way of looking at it, so that's great. So, And I think that's a more useful way of looking at it than just male and female, because mm. there are some mm. females that are actually quite strong with the initial stuff, but we're all a mix. Mm. And I think it's more it's more uh, useful to look at it in terms of this right brain and left brain characteristics, mm. uh, much as that has been decried by certain individuals at the moment. But I still think <laughs> it's a useful general way of, of looking at stuff. So the, the, as, as you're kind of jumping around, um, initially I just thought, well, it doesn't tie together. But then I found things like the menorah text, the text about the menorah, and then um, started looking at the colours. And actually... If you line them up, left brain and right brain, and you just snake between them, the order's there, you know? So difficult to show without diagramizing all of these things. But there's a pattern that runs really deep. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the days of the week, but it just that, to me, just reinforced that actually these six characters that I almost stumbled upon, I kind of just thought, oh, well, it makes more sense to do this, and what names should I call that? Okay, well, then that's the sage. You know, the sage didn't exist in Robert Moore. Douglas Gillette's um, model. They didn't mm. have the sage in there. Um, they had the magician instead of the mystic. Fair enough, I don't really care what you call it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't have the, um, the jester in there as well. And I thought it is important to separate the jester from the lover. Yeah, they'd kind of lump the lover together. So that's the creative one. Yeah, but there's also some people who are really funny and entertaining who don't actually have much of a care for people. We need to do a separation there. You can't lump them into the mystic either, you know, because there are some people who are very spiritual and dreamy and and don't have a love for people. Without mentioning Steve Jobs specifically, there are certain (laughs) individuals (laughs) who who actually are known for that, who didn't treat people very well. Spiritual hermits even, who reject kind of worldly things and people and go to be, live in a cave and contemplate the divine on their own. And that's kind of a archetypal motive itself right is the like the journey into the wilderness mm-hmm. Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness mm-hmm. or Moses going up onto Mount Sinai Sinai yes Sinai on yeah own. for 40 days as well mm. yeah um, so yeah there, there are those times the, the wilderness is in a sense an archetypal environment so there are other types of archetypes but when I'm working on performance improvement mm. I look at what's going on inside the person what makes them tick at that yeah. deepest level and that's where we start, you know, playing with that, uncovering stuff and saying, okay, well then what if it was this way? Or what if you were this way? What if you were more warrior about the way you approach mm. this, you know? And then how does that feel? And so some of them, it's just like, well, it's just not me. I don't want to go there. Well, then you've got a choice. You either get into the gym and you start working those muscles, <laughs> yeah. which sometimes is going to save the company. Um, and a leader will be prepared to do whatever it takes mm-hmm. to become who they need to be in order to lead. Or you say, actually, I could do that, but really I might as well play to my strengths and go with what's best, and I'm going to get the accountant in to deal with the figures. That's my mm. approach. Mm. <laughs> but cool. I don't abdicate. I delegate, and yeah. I stay. I, I learn enough to know how to work with the guys with the figures, Yeah, cool. even though it's not my main thing. Yeah. 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 So you you know you don't have to necessarily change your entire self. You have to make sure that your team and the like or the group you're in mm-hmm. has the basis covered. 
So you're talking earlier about are there people who are like that white light where they're all so strong? There are a few people. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there's one guy who I've reconnected with recently and he did his profile and I said, yeah, that makes sense because I know this guy can play whatever game you give him. Yeah. And he was really strong on all of them. Some a little stronger than others, but he was really up there with all of them. Mm. And he will, you know, he can be who he needs to be. And he is a massive influencer himself. Mm. Um, and, and, and he can so play whatever part is necessary. That's interesting. So what sort of types or combinations do you find kind of playing out repeatedly in kind of different contexts? So, for example, do business owners or uh, leaders tend to have certain traits? Mm hmm so you've got to have the sovereign um, in business um, and anybody who is, is seeking promotion. I mean, as soon as if I, somebody comes to me and say, I need promotion, then I just think, okay, so we need the warrior, uh, we need the sovereign program, probably backed up with a bit of warrior. But it might be that the sage is more important than the warrior. So those two could be either, but definitely the sovereign. They're going to need to step up because they need to take on more responsibility and be shown that they can have something delegated to them and they'll sort it. They mm -hmm. will own it, and that mm -hmm. owning is part of the sovereign thing. So mm. any kind of promotion requires that. Definitely yeah, anybody who's leading any organization, whether it's commercial or charity or whatever, will need to have a measure of that sovereign. Mm. But if somebody comes along and says, I'm a 10 on a sovereign, my thought is I'm more comfortable with a 9 because if you're a 10, it basically means you don't bow to anybody. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if you're totally sovereign. So there again, there are slight danger signs when I see anybody marking themselves as a 10. There's always, you can go overboard if you're not balanced out. Mm. So you've got to have a certain balance. Uh, but I also see people who are very immature with certain things. And they'll say, I'm in business, but their archetype profile shows they're kind of fours and threes on everything. I'm just like, this person's naive. <laughs> Sorry, but they don't step up. They don't yeah. step up to the plate. They let things happen to them uh, because they're just not strong with those archetypes. So if you're in innovation, you've got to have strong mystic. So if I'm doing a company-wide uh, review, and it's great because the filling in the questions only takes about 90 seconds each. And so you give everybody, get on your mobiles, bang all this in here. Um, and then, you know, two minutes later, you've got a map of the entire company. And then I just start reading. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, so the innovation department, okay, it makes sense for this guy. Okay, he's probably going to be causing a bit of a problem with these guys. They need to be freed up to do what they're doing because he's too sage and he's going to start saying to them, that will never work because, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. So that's fine to bring in later, but don't bring him in in the initial brainstorms. Yeah. <laughs> or tell him, guys, this is a slightly different way of doing things here. So you can start <laughs> zooming in on pockets of what's going on. Sales uh, need to be good okay, with well. the warriors and the lover. Yeah. They both they need both. And a fair amount of sage because consultative selling is the best way of selling. It shows you know what they need and you've thought it through, etc. Mm. Um, the lover in sales is in you've got to be able to communicate with people and get them on board with what if you don't build that level of respect, um, I, there's an argument around this. There's got to be a certain level, but if it's too strong, it's equally gonna work against the, 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 the whole selling process. Um, you really need to build respect mm. and that doesn't always come through the lover but if you are just not listening and not empathizing with the person over the table if over the table you are the lover would not like that situation anyway and try and rearrange things but if you if you don't have that empathy with where they're at and there's got to be some sense of the lover in order to do that then you're going to have a hard time persuading them that you're actually on their side 
you know mm. they'll just think you're trying to calculate how to get money out of them you know so there's mm. got to be that trust and that's where the lover is important but you also need the warrior because these guys need to keep at it and keep at it and keep at it and if they do three phone calls and get three rejections and then go oh, i can't stand this anymore <laughs> you know i'm taking it personally yeah um, then they're they're sunk you know they need to yeah, keep to at it and through. keep at it and that's necessary yeah. whereas a consultant in the traditional world, you're not necessarily trying to sell, will need sage and warrior strongest. You know? mm-hmm. Whilst the sovereign can be a little bit lower, though, so they're responsible for their own area, but it's not like they have to run the show. They're not going in to tell the client, you know, I'm coming to take control, yeah. <laughs> unless they've been given control. Mm. Um, but they are there to be discerning and then to push it through. To see it through, some consultants are just lots of sage and not enough warriors. It's like this is what you should be doing. Bye, <laughs> and that's no use. Do I you think. find yourself advising people about their actual kind of career paths and directions they take based on the uh, the archetypes that kind of yeah? Strong? So it's 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 most powerful when I work with entrepreneurial teams. That's the most fun because mm. things immediately become apparent that they they were aware of, but they hadn't ever languaged it and hadn't really understood what was going on there um but i've also one of the first um business owners that i dealt with was a a woman who had a portuguese um property company and uh in in discussions she said well my biggest problem is that we're growing too quickly a lot of people say that's not a problem or that's a good problem (laughs) to have she said it's killing me I can't keep up with the paperwork and this and that and that. And mm. I wish I could just go out and meet these guys. I said, okay, let's do an archetype profile. And she was mm. very low. She was okay on Sovereign, very low on Sage, quite low on Warrior. And mm. the lover was through the roof and the, and the mystic was through the roof. And then the jester was kind of in the middle somewhere. Mm. You think, and you're running the company. Yeah. Okay, so naturally, I suspect that you just love dreaming dreams for yourself and for other people. So when people come to you as a client, it's just like, I can just see this. Okay, you're saying this. Well, what about this? And what about a pool with that property? And what about actually having a little lodge at the end of it? And they're just like, oh, that would be amazing. So she's plugged in with her lover. She's plugged into where they're at. She's given them an even bigger dream. She's getting excited herself. And now she's got to do the paperwork. She hates the paperwork. And so she's up until silly hours at night doing all the paperwork. And she's thinking, I wish I could go and meet another couple of people to talk about their dreams and connect with them. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, you need a CEO, don't you? She's like, what? I said, well, at least a managing director. Mm. Hire mm-hmm. somebody who loves that stuff, who loves bringing things into order, loves getting things right, somebody who's strong with sage, mm-hmm. warrior enough to get that paperwork done, but actually it's strong with sage and then is willing to take responsibility. So with sovereign's got to be fair, sage has got to be really high, mm-hmm. warrior's got to be okay, you know? And there's tolerance with those. It transformed the way. But I said, you need a partnership. You need to set up with somebody. You need to trust them. Uh, mm-hmm. And as always, you don't just sign the paper straight away. You trial the relationship for both sakes of both parties. Mm. Lots of people get ripped off getting into something. They sign the paper and the person runs away with at least half, if not more, the company having done nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. So you need to test them out that way. So and that's a sage way of dealing with a relationship. Uh, so, you know, make sure that you've got the structure in place and a sovereign way you know mm. you're setting boundaries so she that really really and just even imagining that you could see the weight just dropped off her whole expression yeah it's just like i could actually get paid to meet people and dream dreams with them 
Yeah, and just do that. It's like that's and how she got business. You're great, yeah. Mm. She just got more and more sales because she was so good at it. Even though that time was being squashed, she still managed to make the company work on that. Yeah. But it was down to her to do all the paperwork. I said, well, how much are you bringing in? You know, it's like, well, you could you could employ somebody three days a week to start with immediately. You know. Yeah. Cool. So that that was a transformation just with an individual. Mm. When it's in teams or even in relationships, uh, in a relationship situation, the, the the woman are chatting stuff through. You know, her stage was a lot lower than her husband's, and mm-hmm. her, her lover and jester were really a lot higher than his. So I said, "Let me guess." So when you are halfway through a Saturday, and uh, there's a point at which you want you're starting to say to him come on, let's just get out and, and play. Let's just have some fun. And he's saying, no, there's still some things I need to set right and I still haven't done this and I still haven't achieved that and I, I'm not clear about this and I'm still planning our holiday or whatever it is. Mm. Yeah, it happens all the time. Like, yeah. So he's got to fill his quota of sage before he allows himself mm. to go into that and his need for gesture and love just isn't as strong. So I said... You're going to have to live with it. He doesn't need as much connection as you do. <laughs> so you, you live with it or you don't, you know, but yeah. acknowledge it. And now that she sees that in him, she's able to communicate to him on that level and sometimes persuade him, okay, well, look, I know you want to do all these three things. If you just did one, how would you feel? Which is the most important one? So if you just did that for the next hour, how about then at four o'clock, not much of our Saturday left, but at least we've got some time. Mm-hmm. Are you happy to watch a movie together, you know? Mm. Oh, and okay. those dynamics immediately become apparent just from a simple archetype profile. Mm-hmm. So, and to take it on a bit of a tangent here, but related to what you just said, would you say that archetypes can become apparent not just in a person and can be strong not just in a person but in a community as well? So, like a, you know, you, a company might be an example, but also a neighborhood, for example. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. is that is that is that something that is that is that you've noticed in places, and also like, not only does it, how does it affect, say, a neighborhood or any community of people to have certain archetypes be strong and weak, but how does it affect how individuals interact with those groups? Yeah, so there's there's quite a lot there that you can unpack, but um, one of the things that as I'm building the data through the app itself. Um, we're going to start looking at things from a, first of all, from a global perspective, which countries are stronger with certain archetypes. Mm-hmm. And some, I think, are fairly obvious. But then when it comes down to what's regional, it's even more important. We don't have a way of dividing that up at the moment, but that's what we oh, want yeah. to be able to do. Cool. Um, so, like, I mean, you know, I'm going to try not to say anything too... Um, disparaging? Disparaging, <laughs> yeah, that's the word I was looking for um, here. But, you know... Germans may be strong on the sage, mm-hmm. let's say. And maybe French, I'm guessing, might be fairly strong on the lover. Maybe we. And then, <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some other sort of innocuous examples. But I guess, say, um, Americans may be fairly strong on the joker. It's a, okay, so America is so big. I mean, their, oh, yeah, pop, their like population is the size in of one. Europe. Yeah. yeah. So, and and you've got so many diverse different types going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there will be places where um, you know New York has got much more of that hard warrior. Don't mm-hmm. give us stuff about people. We're just business. Get it done, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, get it finished. Get it done. Um, so that's kind of warrior dominating with sage backing it up. 
Yeah. Hmm. Um, whereas if you head over to the opposite coast, <laughs> you've got a lot more of the kind of free spirit. So yeah. The, so the, LA is probably way more um, mystic. Way more mystic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, where do all of the the dreams and and myths? come out yeah hollywood is, is, is creating move. them pushing them out their stories you know so they're storytelling whereas over in new york they're counting the beans <laughs> you know and passionately backing up you've got silicon valley where they're right. dreaming up the new mm-hmm. tech kind of that's almost so kind of like halfway between the two almost. it's like business but... yeah so they the archetypes must work together in order to be effective mm. and so you you cannot have just one of them succeeding they cannot. Mm-hmm. It's you have to. You can only work uh, when you have a team. Are there archetypes that don't work well together? Like, is it possible to have a combination of archetypes where, like, ah, these two archetypes are actually shooting each other down? Kind of like I don't know. Let's say you're like to give a good example of one person. Let's say you're like really lover and really warrior, but mm-hmm. then that ends up say coming across to people as like. You're really aggressively social, <laughs> yeah. and like you seem yeah, to kind of just get involved in everyone's <laughs> business in a way that's actually mm-hmm. quite awkward. Like, absolutely, and this is where the archetype profile will reveal that before you've met the person. If you see <laughs> those two as strong, you'll say they're passionate. Okay, well, how does that work for them, and how does that work against them? How does that affect their relationships? Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. And so, you'll get dynamics, uh, especially say between. Um, if you're really somebody's really strong with warrior and somebody's mm-hmm. really strong with mystic, they and um, they have to work to respect each other because naturally they won't. The the the, the mystic will just say, you know, you're just such a blunt as an instrument, you warrior. You're just going to bash everything through, and you think that's the way to get stuff done, you know. Mm. Whereas actually. I can imagine and dream because I'm transcending up to a different level and I'm able to see something in a totally different light. And you actually, you don't, you're almost laughing at you don't need to expend all that energy, you know, because mm. I've got a laser and you're working with a blunt saw, you know. <laughs> yes, you'll get it done. And a lot of people will get hurt in the process. Whereas I've got to find a way of dealing with something because I'm operating at a higher level, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. And the warrior looks back and just goes, you're a dreamer. You're woolly. You're nebulous. Mm. You're just always head in the clouds, you know? So mm. there's those dynamics. But again, between the, the lover and the sage, uh, you'll get similar sort of dynamics as well. It's like the lover's wanting to connect and, and the, the sage is wanting to calculate. Mm. Um, and so you, you got those interesting And then, of course, like with the sovereign and the jester, where the sovereign is trying to give orders, the jester is just taking the piss out of him. Yeah, like, because the, the jester is the first one to break the rules um, yeah. and have no respect for boundaries. Mm. Um, so that's, yeah, that's an interesting one. And yet, and, but the sovereign, if they're wise, will give the jester a certain amount of room. And so in the old stories, the old medieval courts, the only person who could insult the king and not lose their head was the jester. Oh, yeah, literally. His, it was Quite his literally. Job, yeah. It was his job was to poke fun at everything, including the king. And again, yeah. it's fascinating that that was an integral court function. Yes. To go back to kind of what I was saying, well, why do we have to have comedy? Why is it considered mm. so valuable? Mm-hmm. Mm. Comedians are so popular. Yeah. And the court jester. Yeah. To mock the king. Yeah, absolutely. And a wise king will keep employing them, you know. Mm. So um, <clears throat> that's, and it's an, it's an important part of the balance. You'll also see that the sovereign then utilizes other archetypes. They'll usually go to the warrior and the sage in order to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. 
But if, the, if they're in a crisis and that's not working, they'll then turn to the mystic. And so you see this in all sorts of situations um, where, uh, I mean, it's slightly different with Lord of the Rings, where Aragorn, uh, initially Strider, you know, finds his old name as Aragorn. Is, he's rising up as a king. Um, <clears throat> but you see the different dynamics between the kings who will accept Gandalf's word and those who dismiss him. Yeah. Mm. And it's interesting that the one who rose into power, into destiny, was the one who sided with the mystic. Yeah. Mm. Whereas the other two kings, well, the steward and the king, um, who, who sort of had a, a, a harder time with him, <laughs> mm. were much more about, you know, keeping order, keeping tradition, um, and where there's only so much room we can give this mystical character. And, you know, mm. the one who did lasted longer than the other. Um, <laughs> but it was Aragorn who opened his heart to Gandalf. Mm. And from that was promoted in a sense in back in his place. Fascinating with to continue the kind of conversation about Lord of the Rings is really integral <laughs> in it. That you know, you've got Gandalf, this like magical power who still needs to enlist the help of ordinary men and yes. in order yeah. to get things done. Yeah. Even though like, you know, there's that scene in the third one where he rides out on his horse and pretty much scares all of the Nazgul away just by shining his staff yeah. at them. Yeah. And in the end he's able to call the eagles and get them away. Yes. But you don't get there's no story for one thing if the uh, I suppose the, the mystic just comes in comes in and changes the world yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose part of the point is that that's impossible yes and and if they did in a sense it wouldn't be right because and, mm. and this is an interesting thing to bring into this is that there are principles that also apply through life as well and and um, there's some all sorts of interesting dynamics where you see people trying to work against principles that are built into uh, ways of life. That it, it, every society will elevate some of these archetypes um, and, and go through periods of elevating them a little bit too much. Can you give any yeah. examples of that? So there'll be some cultures where the witch doctor is ruling the roost. Mm. Oh, yeah. Or I guess you doesn't have... end well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or another great one is um, sort of like why there's never really been a true warrior society that's ever lasted that long, and everyone's like, "Oh, but Sparta," and it's like, "Yeah, what happened to Sparta? They lost a couple of battles, yeah. you know." Well, your whole society is based around warriors, and you lose a bunch of battles, like you know, you're gone. gone. Yeah, you're you're, you're done gone. for. Yeah. You know. So there wasn't that wisdom to actually say we can't throw all our resources into this situation. So, oh, yeah, but they died with honor. Yeah, but they died. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they exactly. Got, not, just, not just a few individuals, an entire, you know, race. I mean, it was a, well, a you culture. Know, the whole ruling the whole class, culture. you know, mm. would ride to their death. And then it's like, oh, yeah. you know, we fulfilled, like, the principles of our society. It's like, yeah, but now your society is over. Yeah, and at cost, because they used to kill their infants if they saw them as being slightly weak. Yeah, and they also set up so, their entire like economy so that there would be a massive slave revolt every 10 years. So they could <laughs> fight against loads of slaves every 10 years. <laughs> yeah. So there's, yeah, so everyone goes too far, um, or is in danger of going too far. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, if we, if we look at the, any culture from an archetypal point of view, uh, and it's interesting when you look at the spiral dynamics model, of societies going through different That's phases. It is. That, that deserves a whole mm. extra thing. Um, <laughs> you, know, you have to look at that as multiple episodes. But mm. there, if you're familiar with it, and if you're not, 
get familiar with it um, <laughs> because it's it's you do see certain archetypal characters are kind of uh, elevated at each one of those times. It's either more it, it always swings from one level to another to another to that it's more mm-hmm. me centric or we centric, me centric, we centric, me centric, we centric, um, and we will, as societies we we mature through these levels. And so for some of them, the warrior will be the dominant archetype. For others, it will be more of the order of the blue level where you've got um, you've got structure and you've got order. The sovereign and the sage are setting mm. the rules and it's rule-based and there is a right way to do things and this is it. Uh, but then certain individuals start breaking out from that with more of a me-centric, mystical kind of approach which innovates and breaks through to another level. And so there's, there's all sorts of, of levels and it's interesting to see where we are at the moment where mm. the world has got all these things together. There are some cultures where the warrior is dominant there's other cultures where structure and order and enforced law is the way that it goes. Mm. Um, I mean, the communist system is, is enforcing that more than anything. But then you can say, well, yeah, but capitalism in a way enforces its own rules as mm. well. Um, Although you could kind of see it as like, especially like the really totalitarian sort of Joseph Stalin, Chen Mao is kind of the the too much. Um, it's, it's the overinflated stage of the sovereign yeah where like your sovereign gets way too sovereign and yeah. starts controlling everything and everyone and destroying everyone that disagrees with him and trying yeah. to dictate all so if life. it's not balanced with the other states so if there's no lover going on in there mm. it's just right out of the pile then um there is a danger of the sovereign being too strong but the particular thing is when the mm. needs of the individual are not being met when their needs are not being met, they will do more of who they are mm-hmm. in order to get things to happen. Ooh. So within that framework, um, what would your thoughts be on the emergence of counter- counterculture in the 1960s and, say, the hippie movement? <laughs> All right. Three, two, one. We're back. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so um, my question was, like, sort of, Looking at the, through the lens of kind of societies go through kind of stages of emphasizing one or another of the archetypes, um, how would you sort of analyze what would your sort of breakdown be of, let's just say like the hippie movement in the 60s, and Mm -hmm. actually a lot of it really happened in the 70s to be honest, but, um, uh, and sort of that like, like emergence of counterculture out of 1950s American culture. So in some ways the spiral dynamics model is, is a, a probably a better way of looking at it because it pulls different energies together in a slightly different way. But from an archetypal point of view, um, what we saw in the 50s was that there was this move back to the sage where it was science was everything. It was almost like it was a funny version of the Enlightenment when it was science now has the future um, in its hands. And so the space race had started um, and it was all to do with appliances and there was now money coming back after Britain was virtually bankrupt in the war. The states came and rescued the UK. Uh, we were still paying back those debts until about a decade ago, you know, um, mm. and we, you know, we were kind of just ugh, every penny during the war years was going into the war effort and nobody had anything. Mm-hmm. And so in the 50s, money started coming back 
industry was revitalized with a new level of technology. Interestingly, that you know the war itself demanded that technology actually advanced for war purposes, <laughs> and so money was put into researching. And then, actually, in the fifties. Joe Bloggs was actually benefiting from some of those advances in technology because now they could become commercially available. So suddenly there was this step forward. And it's like, oh, this is the engineers that have helped us now to improve our quality of life. And now machines are doing a lot of stuff for us that we used to have, you know, horses and uh, mm. all this old stuff, all we were doing by hand ourselves. And now we've got a lot of machines doing stuff. Uh, and the factories were pushed into, because of the war effort, factories were set up in order to build munitions. Mm. And then you've got all these factories. And so how do we do something with that in order to produce goods for people cheaper mm. than ever before? Because these whole, you know, they had to mass produce munitions in the war. Well, mm. then they learned how to mass produce, well, kind of anything. Mm. So out comes this massive output. People have started to get back to their jobs, back to making money lifts up, but science is seen to be the thing. So the boffins were the ones elevated by society who would appear in the papers, and they were emotionally not that intelligent, <laughs> but their IQ was really strong, and so they were given the big jobs, and they would start appearing on talk shows and all the rest. You know, So the sages had their heyday. But there's only so much of that that society can tolerate, and so halfway through the 60s, you then start getting these guys going, yeah, but you can't reduce our entire lives down to these measurable facts. And, and, and Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you can't reduce everything down by these scientific things. And we're still, there's a struggle in society today between mm. the scientists and the spiritual guys, you mm. know. One is the realm of what you can measure. But as soon as you're dealing with powers that you can't measure, the scientists get nervous and either say it doesn't exist, because like, you can't measure it, it doesn't exist, is kind of what some people will say, Dawkins included. Right. You know, if I can't measure it, it doesn't exist, and it, it doesn't need to come into my thinking, my equation. Um, and then you've got those guys looking back and just saying, we've transcended, and we transform our lives because of it. Up to you whether you partake of this, but we wish you could be a part of that. So the mystics kind of had their day, but that's now the mystics. It's there's a big surge of mysticism, mm -hmm. the new age movement. Which yes, it was it was involved in the sixties, but the sixties was just as much a love movement of people connecting with people. Not we're not all machines. This mechanization could potentially be going too far, fellas. Let's start thinking about people. So communes started developing where mm -hmm. they would, you know, drop out and uh, of, of the system because the system was still quite strong. Um, and, and so you started seeing this emergence of the lover would be very strong. The whole ecological thing was tied up with the community. So you'd have a, a layer of mysticism, <clears throat> but actually it was driven through a desire to connect. Yeah, connect with people and for some of them connect with a higher plane as well. And so that kind of broke out from the old model. Now, <clears throat> you then began to see the warrior return in the 80s. So you it's had it. Metal. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, the, the music reflected this. So <clears throat> in the 60s, it was all strummy, strummy, nicey, nicey. I could do some. Um, <laughs> and then by the time the 80s came around, of course, music goes in all sorts of directions, but there was a much stronger and a harder edge coming mm. in. And mm -hmm. the types of stuff that people were 
singing. So heavy metal comes in, and you know, punk rock. half of that. Yeah, punk was just a kind of an explosion of rebellion. Mm. Um, Even and, like <clears throat> techno is a lot more yep. of the kind of like um, sort of formulaic, but also like a, um, sort of downbeat and like hard edged kind of music. Yeah. So you'll see it reflected in all sorts of music types as well, which is, you know, that always, you can almost sum up every band with which are their strongest archetypes. Every boy mm. band that love is super duper strong, you know. Yeah. But usually when you start reading the interviews, you'll see this one's a bit more sage-like and this one's a bit more mystic, dreamy-like, and this more, you know, you saw it and take that, you know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and... So you've got these, this emergence taking place of community and ecology uh, through the 60s in particular. But even then, there was a backlash against that. As the, you, it dwindled during the 70s, of course. But then in the 80s, you've got much stronger that the business drive was the big thing. And, mm. and Thatcher starts coming in with there is no society, just a collection of individuals. You know, So it swung back to the I, not the we. Um, and then the warrior is coming in and big, big business is beginning to come in again and dominate. Now, there were always times and places with Rockefeller and Ford and others mm. who, who did big business things before. But the whole of society was then perpetuating this new thing in the 80s, which was just, you know, make it happen. And it's power dressing and power ties and power this and power lunches and power mm. naps. You know, <laughs> power, nap. power everything. Yeah. Um, but not in that ecological sense. Yeah. Um, I suppose this is really the error that now business has transcended nationality as well right yes it's like business is now the super entity for mm -hmm. people yeah and ibm's you know gross national product was was a national product it, it was mm. bigger than some countries you know mm. by that time mm. um lots of countries actually and so yeah those the, uh, so you had sovereigns over businesses that had more influence and power than sovereigns over geographical territories and we've seen that dilute even further and further and further the geographical borders this is why politicians are having such a difficult time is that the politicians no longer have the control that they used to it used to be that your territory that was a wall <clears throat> you could control anything that went across that whereas now with the web and all the rest it's just like it's there yeah. and now this is a secondary function if not tertiary if not quaternary i mean it's Ooh. like way down the pecking order is this idea of a geographic border now so what do you make <clears throat> of what's going on in the world certainly in the last say three years let's say kind of post-trump and post-brexit like what's this kind of retribalization and the sort of connecting back to certain ideas of nationality and yeah. boundaries and yeah. wars and a kind of rejection of that that global almost business sense i think so there's good and bad in that <clears throat> it's not <clears throat> i don't agree with all those guys who just say it's all a bad thing um, no, because actually I. it's more <clears throat> interesting than it, it is more interesting because it has to do with identity and mm. to me the archetypes and identity are so closely wrapped up. There are levels of identity deeper than archetypes, but <clears throat> the archetypes are a very strong expression of who you are and who you see yourself to be and who other people see you to be. So it's, it's how you, you identify yourself as an individual. But then from a nationalistic point of view, those guys who will stand up and start talking about stuff that is related to the identity of the nation and start putting that on the map, they are likely to get 
higher levels of support than somebody who just comes along and says, oh, we're just a great big global community and it's just all wonderful that we're doing this and that and, you know, we're here to serve the world and, and all the rest. And that there should be a balance here. This is where the sovereign is, has to have the wisdom to say where there are boundaries and where actually we can keep them open. Where do we define our borders and where do we keep borders open? Uh, and there's a real wisdom that has to be implemented. I wouldn't like the job of any of these current politicians <laughs> who have to make decisions about certain things. There's certain things I agree with, certain things I definitely don't agree with that, that are mm. taking place in every country. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but you'll see that very often um, it, it's the balance between the individual and how much they reflect the um, the current sort of zeitgeist of, of the, the community. And that could be a community of a town or it could be an entire nation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and whether they're tapping into that. And all they need is the majority of them to tick the box, you know. But if they sum that up and they personify that themselves, if they speak that language, then they can carry a whole nation with them. So Luther King did it with I Have a Dream, and mm -hmm. he strenuously uh, worked against the violent factions within his movement who wanted to uh, bring a violent solution, as Malcolm X did, against the established order. You know, mm -hmm. you could say it was justified, but Luther King said, it may be justified, but it's not the way. And we've got to think about the life where, of the other side. So his dream was white and black, all together singing the same song you know mm -hmm. um and so he presented that as the vision not the black guys finally have their day <laughs> and more power to them mm. i say and doesn't mean that we wipe out any other community or attack any other community mm -hmm. just as with mandela he had the same situation you know mm. walking away from the prison gates do i choose in this moment to forgive those horrendous whiteies who've done this horrible stuff to me personally taken 25 years of my life you know mm. or do I forgive and he had that choice to make at that time so he was acting as sovereign in a way but he's also strong with the other archetypes and willing to spread love willing to spread harmony willing to keep the vision of the future um, and so he had a good mix he was also sage enough mm. to to approach things you know he saw his whole prison years as preparation time not stolen Mm. He was sage enough to take away the emotion from it and just say, actually, <clears throat> this could be to the salvation of the nation, you know, mm. if I stay my course and if I'm true to the vision. Um, so there's <laughs> that was a mix of things going on. Yeah. So do you think people make that sort of make political and sort of community decisions do you think their decision-making is influenced greatly by the presence at a given moment of sort of, and the strength of the archetypes that they have going on? It's a major influence. And you'll find that the people who are being elevated into positions of power just have that resonance. So if some, if the nation's beginning to feel frustrated, like something needs to happen, mm -hmm. then the person who, who is speaking that voice of the archetype is necessary. So there's something that needs to happen could be an ecological message. It could be a community message, or it could be a warrior message. And if they capture that moment, they will then be able to go leaps and bounds into the, into the future. Uh, and this can be done positively and negatively. Um, there are dictators who've risen on the back of the discontent 
of, uh, of any people group. Uh, and as long as they are speaking a word that will give them a vision of a better future, it's almost like whatever means they give them, they will accept. But especially if they tap into it and they show that, well, then the warrior is the one that needs to make this happen or, you know, whatever it might be. There's always got to be, if there's any making it happen, there's always got to be a sense of the warriors in this. <laughs> um, but some will do it more through the inspiration of the dream, Martin Luther style. Um, <laughs> some will do it more through the, guys, we've got to punch our way out of this, you know. What would you make of the fact that Ukraine has recently elected a comedian, a literal comedian, mm. to president who hasn't really made any policy proposals, he's just made fun of his opponents? <clears throat> well, it's a joke, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and these guys do like to box outside the thing. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating on, mm. on so many levels, and I don't know... I the depths of this guy I haven't studied him etc yeah, but yeah. it is actually a wonderful case in point that actually sometimes nothing else seems to be working yeah and what you'll find is that quite often well that sovereign thing hasn't worked of trying to enforce boundaries the warrior thing hasn't worked they've been battling it out for 20 years and nobody's mm. winning the sage thing hasn't worked because nobody's been able to sort of calculate how to solve this riddle mm. um and then, you know, the mystic thing, I don't know, there will seem to be dreamers who don't seem to make anything happen. Mm. The lover will be tried reaching out and negotiating and that's fallen apart. Ah, blow it. Let's just have a party and just, just do, let's just show how ridiculous this whole thing is. And yeah. I think, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. And I'm, the whole blinking nation agrees. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like even Donald Trump is kind of using that jester energy, even if he's not doing it consciously himself right. part of the appeal and his charisma is that he's just so ridiculous right. and out there and so memeable yeah. and that's something yeah. that's so big among his base is yeah. that you know you've got like reddit's the donald and all of these like can't stump the trump videos yeah. of him just shutting mm. people down and saying things and it's like oh my god i didn't know this could be done in politics yeah yeah uh, he, he's just bulldozed you know, mm. through. And I think some of the things he's bulldozers were actually probably quite good, but a lot of what he has bulldozed, bulldozed, bulldozed. Bulldozen. <laughs> <laughs> bulldozened. That sounds German. We are bulldozened. Um, but he's, he's just smashed through. I mean, you know, America doesn't pay him. So he's not beholden to anybody. Mm. He doesn't take a salary. He's, he can just do whatever he wants in a way. And and I, I think there's actually quite a lot of... I think there's been... You can, you can query whether he himself is kind of corrupt because of who he is, but he's not beholden to anybody else. And that's the first time in 200 years in American politics that that has been the case. Mm. Um, and he's certainly speaking his mind and make, taking action accordingly. I don't know if I would tick all those same boxes that he takes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but at the same time, as you say, it's really interesting. And I, in some ways, he's the president that America needed. Mm. That's something to chew on. There's arguments for and against. But in some ways, it, he's, you know, this whole thing about draining the swamp. Mm. <laughs> it's used from both sides. Yeah. And I actually, there seems to be a lot of that that he's going through. And I, I don't know enough about, you know, the other guys in the circles. But I've learned not to pay any attention to the media. What do you think about what's going on here then? Because my sense is that Britain's really just lacking leadership. Yeah. Like, we can't find anybody who yeah. can garner enough of the spirit of the community to stand up and do anything. And so we've got 
Theresa May, who I'm not particularly fond of, but then at the same time, it's like she's kind of doing the hardest job in the world. And yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. To it. Yeah. And I don't know who I would want to replace her. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know if anybody does. There, there doesn't seem to be anybody who's who's doing exactly what we were saying earlier, which is understanding the mood of the people and able then to put voice to that, um, mm-hmm. to actually speak a, a vision of what this can be. Um, I'm still very hopeful that um, you know, Brexit will go ahead. Um, mm. and, and whether we like it or not, it's going to go ahead. I'm still actually believing. And I have this sneaky, strange thing, and maybe it's the mystic in me, but I believe even if it gets really tough, that actually out from that situation we're going to come out, this nation is known for its creativity. Mm. Um, whilst the sovereign has been very strong, there is a constant thing of innovation within this nation. Mm. Um, which has changed the world. We have exported ideas to every nation of the world, you know, for hundreds and multiple hundreds times. of years, multiple you know. times. We mm. keep reinventing. Darn it, the internet came from a Brit. <laughs> okay, yeah. he was working in Switzerland at the time, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, but the you know the whole idea of of this uh, the back to this wilderness idea. Sometimes it's the the wilderness that that we need to go into in order for the new thing to, to break out. And you know what happens when the rains finally do hit the wilderness, the whole thing springs up with colour and life that you'd never seen there before. Um, I'm just hopeful that it'll be more lasting. We need to utilise technology in much more productive ways. There's a few people doing some wonderful stuff. It's just sometimes it takes pressure for that diamond to come through. Yeah. Um, and at, all, at the moment, all we can see is the sooty coal. Yeah, mm. but once the pressure comes down, actually, then the diamond begins to form, um, and that's that's when we'll. I think we're going to see some really amazing stuff in the next twenty, thirty years coming out of this country. Um, and actually, <clears throat> Brexit is just a ploughing of the ground. It doesn't look pretty. It doesn't feel nice. It's a mess. It's shaking <clears throat> things up. <laughs> but if you don't do that, the seed doesn't go into the ground. Mm. Mm. You know, it's nice to hear a, a bit of optimism. In yeah. a time of so much. Yeah, we don't, you definitely don't hear a lot of people um, um, speaking with such, uh, with any real certainty, you know, mm. about, about what's going to happen going forward and about what our fate really is. So I'm not sure that I'm speaking with certainty, but I am speaking with hope. I mean, I can maybe this say is where confidence this is, the... is probably the better word. Certainty yeah. implies no, but confidence more implies like... Yeah, Co- confidence is an interesting word, um confidence comes from confidere which is to have trust in mm-hmm. yeah so when people talk about i'm going to go to a confidence class it just basically means you trust yourself mm. not to be stupid <laughs> uh, yeah, trust yourself to do the yeah. right thing trust yourself that you've got the goods and you can have confidence with other people i trust you that you're going to do the right thing or you're going to do you know what's necessary or you're going to complete the thing that i've asked you to do or whatever it might be um so it's confidence is based in that trust and i do have a strong sense of that trust um, and and to me that springs from hope so hope is actually the primary power of the mystic really they have a picture of a better future they have an expectation so fear and hope operate with the same muscle mm. they both involve expectation 
It's just one is an expectation of a bad thing happening. But those mm. same muscles inside our soul, if I can put it that way, scientists won't like that one. Um, but inside your soul, that muscle can be used towards fear or it can swing towards hope, but it's the same mechanism. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so if you have an expectation of a good thing, it's called hope. <laughs> if you have an expectation of a bad thing, it's called fear. Neither of them have happened yet. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that's the dynamic there. Um, that that and the, the mystic is able to spark that hope and, mm. and turn it into something that people believe in. And the and the mystic will just say, just believe. And the, the, the sage will go, just you airhead, you yeah. know. Here's the facts. But the mystic will say, only believe, just believe. So can you say in a way that sort of Remain was a bit like sage, like, no, look at the facts, it's going to be bad <clears throat> for the economy, it's going to result in these bad things, like, don't do it, look at the facts. And then Brexit was a bit, um, was a bit mystic. We believe kind of in like, it, yeah. You know, like, you could take see it that way. control, think about yeah. it, we're going to be back in control, like, yeah. you know, like... And what could that mean for us? It's like, yeah, what could that mean for us? <laughs> and so there's two ways of arguing it, but in a sense that's true. I mean, so it was tapping into a, um, a discontent amongst people. Um, and, you know, when you keep hearing things coming out of Brussels that we're no longer allowed to do this, we've got to do it this way, and you just, there's a point at which you just go who's making these rules? This is ridiculous. Um, and, and I think that that had seeped through enough to the point where people started to say, hold on a second. Um, I don't think that the immigration issue was the deciding factor. I think for some people that was a, a, an important mm. factor. I don't think that was what tipped the scales, though. Um, I, I think it was just the, the some of the things that Brussels is enforcing. And you begin then, you know, you can argue it any way you want economically. Well, we're going to save this. Well, no, that means we don't get these subsidies. We get these. And what's it going to cost for this part of the world and that and all that? At the end of the day, the dream will win out because people will be motivated by hope. Every election is won on hope. It's just that it's delivered in slightly different ways. Some will deliver it with factual statistics some will deliver it with just force of personality whatever it is people buy into if i vote for them we've got a better future it's hope mm. however it's delivered it's hope and obama was the first president who actually used it overtly yeah a hope said for it. america you know um, yeah something archetypal about that right it's the ability mm. to tell the story about where we're going yeah yeah, and so it is like it's like we're on the hero's journey, but I can tell you what's coming, and mm. that in itself gives gives a sense of hope. Mm. So definitely, because that's part of the hero's journey. What's the idea of the uh, the guy, the old man, or whoever it is who yeah. helps them along? And I think that's what powerful campaigns do. Is they play this like we yeah. will help you, the average person, mm. to realise your destiny, your dreams, whatever is supposed to be right. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a, a very strong sense in which that's it's the in the hero's journey, it's the wise old man who appears. And, and mm. in a sense, they can be more sage-like or more mystical. I know some people think of a sage as a mystical character. I separate the two, and there's, it, there's an imperfection of names. Whatever name you give to somebody, it's going to be, you know, it's going to have slightly different connotations. But I think with the warrior, we're pretty clear. With the king or sovereign, it's pretty clear. Um, the sage might be a little bit. Of, to me, they're just the rational brain mm. box type. Some people think of them as a bit mystical. I just say, okay, leave the mystics for the guys who who dream 
um, and have got that level. And this is back to the thing about can you divide between knowledge and understanding? If you can, you'll recognize the difference between the sage mm. and the mystic. If to you it's just kind of all the same sort of thing, I can understand why you would confuse the two. Mm. <laughs> but um, Einstein was an interesting character because he had very strong mystical and sage qualities. In fact, he would say that his mystical qualities were stronger than his sage. He used different language, but almost every breakthrough that he had came through a dream. This is something fantastic I find about like these great scientists like Nikola Tesla used to say that he invented by tapping into the cosmic library and he wasn't really inventing himself. He could just see that it was there in this kind of idea. It was already there. Exactly. And then there's another amazing story about um, the guy who I think discovered the benzene ring in chemistry. Right. And he had a dream of a snake hitting its own tail, which is one of the oldest archetypal yeah. in the Ouroboros, yes. right? Yes. It's cross-cultural, the snake. The young and... Yeah. You see people with tattoos with it, and yet you had yeah. this dream of this thing and thought, hang on, maybe... Could it be? <laughs> yeah, and it was. The yeah. benzene is a ring. Yeah. It's... Yeah. So it's, it's interesting, and this is why Jung was just, yeah, there is this collective unconscious mm. that we can all tap into. Um, so there are ways, and there's, there's you know, non-locality of information comes into quantum understanding. You know, the, mm. there is, there's stuff out there that anyone can access, and people doing remote viewing, if you've ever studied that. But these guys have been able to do remarkably, stunningly, shockingly accurate stuff um, through guys who were who you initially were engineers and were just trained in ways of doing remote viewing, and of course some were better at it than others. But actually, almost anybody who could follow these particular processes, and it was controlled through the military initially. Um, that uh, there's very it went under various names, but there were these whole projects supported by the military and then by the CIA. Um, that for years people said, "Oh, they stopped the funding because it didn't work." The CIA doesn't fund anything for 20 years if it doesn't work. <laughs> and, so, and you had these guys who were initially were hard military men, you know, and pulling in soldiers who were basically couldn't work on active duty anymore, didn't want to leave the military. So, you know, they, they, they're not working with mystical psychic types, they're, they're, but they're able to tap into levels of knowledge and come out with info on things that are the other side of the planet. You know, yeah. describing, drawing, saying, okay, this is here, this is what's going on here, even down to the dimensions of certain things. And some of them have done it at a, almost a subatomic level as well. They're able to, to access, and they would say it's psychic. China has a whole program of, of identifying psychic children and, and uh, programizing them for wow. national benefit. That's been going on for 20 years as well. So there's uh, spooky stuff, but what's the point of all of that? Yeah. The point of all that is that the, the, the mystic will be open to those sorts of ideas. Yeah. And if the sage is on board, you can actually work together to generate something quite remarkable. Because this life is a lot more mysterious than you might imagine it to be. And if you're just open to it, as Einstein was, as others have been, suddenly... You know, as Einstein said, my gift of imagination has done more for me than my ability to look at the evidence and, and rationalize. Whereas cool. Planck would be looking at the, the hard evidence and grappling with things that, yes, they don't make sense to my rational, logical mind, but are nevertheless appear to be true from the data. I think for a lot of, well, for the last few hundred years, say, there's been this real tension between perhaps 
science and religion for lack mm. of better words for it and that seems to me you can read that as a tension between almost like sage likeness and mysticness mm -hmm. and certainly a lot of the <clears throat> scientific camps seem to say religion spirituality it's basically a low resolution idea of what we're trying to do we've got the better answer for it you right. just need us but my sense and i really feel like this is something that has been around forever but is picking up steam now is that people are more interested in the in the spiritual, religious kind of symbolic ways of expressing mm. existence as well as the scientific. And yeah. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. Yeah. I just think they're almost different languages for explaining the same thing. I mean, like, the example I always use is like, if you imagine I took a lighter and lit the flame, and then I said, so what's that? And you might say, well, it's a fire, and how you describe its properties, and you could say it's hot, it's light. And then mm -hmm. you could say, well, kind of, but actually it's an exothermic combustion reaction and you've got electrons jumping up and down and yeah. by doing that they're releasing photons and yeah. they're causing vibrations in the air particles and that's what we pick up as heat. Right. And they say, right, but what if you tried to explain to a five-year-old why they shouldn't put their finger in the fire? Yeah. And you're not get, like, that explanation is too technical yeah. and it doesn't give them any of the sense of the, the danger or the sensory presence mm -hmm. of the flame. And I think that's, that's science and religion in a nutshell, right? You can yeah. understand the mm -hmm. world through this very analytical fragmentary lens mm. that gives you a really good way of understanding it and manipulating it but yeah. it also takes all the magic out of it and it takes all of the personality out of it you can't relate to it in yes. the same way yeah whereas you can relate to god whatever god means to you you mm -hmm. can relate to the stories and the spirits yeah yeah very much so um yeah it's 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 really interesting just you know, there's a point at which you get to the paralysis of analysis. There's a point of which, mm. which is a Luther King term, I'm sure somebody said it before him. Um, but there's also that point where you can remove meaning by trying to break things down into this reductionist sort of way. It's actually what does the fire mean to you, you know, is, is more important, I would say, <laughs> than mm. what's actually happening there in terms of the combustion and the chemical, you know, reactions and all the rest that are taking place it's like well actually you know do i need a fire and if i do you know what will that do for me and and that's kind of how i deal with the archetypes there'll be people mm. who argue one thing or another about well you yeah but you can't say this and you can't say that and i say look it's just a metaphor but if you tap into it it's extraordinarily powerful how much that'll change your behavior and when you change your behavior it'll change your results take all the mystical stuff out of it just look at it as behavioral science um, because I can encourage people to do more of one thing and less of another, and they will see the reasoning, and they will be able to tap into that internal, innate, emotional uh, drive mm. that will lead them in, down more of that path, because they now recognize that's who they need to be. It's not the skills that we work with, first of all. I don't go around with companies saying, you know, let's up our skills or down our skills. It's like, who are we as people? Because if you need to learn something, as long as there's enough sage there, they will learn it. Yeah. If they need to connect more and, and come together a lot more with more unity and uh, concern and care for each other, then if they step up into the lover, that's going to happen. Yeah. You don't need to learn that knowledge. It's like emotional intelligence. It's, it's great, but you've kind of got this idea of like trying to teach people 
the emotional thing. It's like, no, no actually, you need to feel emotions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so reading about it in a book is actually really not the best way of conveying emotional intelligence, except to the sages who say, yes, I understand love now. <laughs> <laughs> I understand the oh, need. Oh, God, what's this thing I'm feeling? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the need for, oh, I can label it now and categorize it and put it in a little box and I'll get it out when I need it. I'll start, like, you know, measuring it every day and I'll drop yes. it. <laughs> and I'll say, yes, and I'll plot my levels of love to see whether they've gone in the right direction, you know. <laughs> KPIs of love. It's like, ah, oh, so, you know, my average monthly love sort of index has <laughs> dropped too low. It seems like I should probably break up with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> or change your behaviors in order to, be, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, so it's a funny thing. And yet, at the same time, I use a measurement system, zero to ten. How much of the love is in you right now, right at this moment, you know? And what would happen if that increased? Or what would happen if you pulled it, pulled it back a little mm. bit? And you can control that like a little thermostat inside of you you can do that and you can do it for any one of those characters you know mm. and if you see the need for it um you then it's just a degree of your maturity as to whether you're going to take that on other thing you say that's not me you know it's like my identity is found in this place and not in that place whereas a leader will always be willing a mature leader will be willing to do whatever it takes to become who they need to be in order to take the people where they need to go what can people, if they're listening to this, do to start exploring these within themselves? So, um, profiling yourself is a great start. And that's mm. why I used to do this on the back of a beer mat. I mean, literally in a pub, I'll be sitting here, I'd say, right, sovereign, warrior, sage, mystic, lover, jester, little line. Okay, so where are you? Zero to ten. How much of the sovereign's in you right now? And as long as they understand the character, and if I just say, oh, that kind of kingly energy, you know, how much of that? Oh, I'm about four or five at the moment. Mm -hmm. oh, give me another one. Okay, five. You know, and then we'd literally plot them all. And then I'd say, okay, so what is it you want? And then we'd say, okay, so what's the profile that you need in order to do that? So we'd literally just scribble it out. And after a five-minute mm -hmm. conversation, they can see where the gap is. And they see, oh, I need to step up in the sage then because I just don't know what I need to know to make this happen. Okay, well then, how are you going to go about that? And they plot out, well, I'm going to buy three books by the end of the week and I'm going to finish one of them in two weeks' time. And okay, that's, you know, whatever it will be. It's like, mm. that's learning. Or it might be the warrior they need more of. Or with their relationship, it might be more of the lover. <laughs> it might mm. be that the lover's too strong. And they're coming over as a bit of a desperado. <laughs> it's like, I must connect more with you. And it's just like, I've had enough connection from you. Thank you know. So you've got those overheated states of all of them. Yeah. So maybe, but you can't really, you can pull back a little bit, but it's easier not to try and pull back an archetype, but to strengthen another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To, so if you want to pull back on the lover, it's actually stronger to bring in the sage who de-emotionalizes things, you know, mm -hmm. who's able to do it. So you build that strength and you get the person to think more rationally about the situation. Say, so if you were that sage at the moment where you weren't emotionally invested in this situation, just step back, look at the, the, the bigger picture. These two people doing their thing, remove yourself from it. What would you... So there's... There's that approach that people can take. So what I'm saying here is that once you've got your profile, you can begin to see where you are naturally. And then when you start doing that comparison, so you either compare it to the, your partner um, or you can compare it to your job situation or what's demanded of you. So it's like the, who you are against the demand of the environment or the demand of the job or the demand of the challenge. Mm. Why do I keep running away from that challenge? Well, I'm just demanding too much of that warrior and I'm not willing to go there. You know? But what if you did? You know, and then so we can explore opportunities and take them that way. So at teamme.app, 
I produced this little thing online mm. where you get the answer by just banging in a bunch of questions. Uh, you just answer, answer, answer. It's 30 questions, but it takes about 90 seconds and you're mm. done. You press your sign up with Facebook and you're in, add your email. And you get the response of your two strongest archetypes. So at that point, now then people will then sometimes follow up. They've got these video courses and all the rest that I've got that they can link off to to understand depths of, of what to do. Because what we haven't discussed, maybe for another time, is how precisely do you, what exactly do you do in order to strengthen the warrior or to strengthen the sage or strengthen the lover? And there's three key areas related to language and posture and your focus. And there are things that you can do with each of those areas. If you activate those, you can strengthen that character. And the more you do it, then it's going to build it like the muscles in the gym. So you can build up any one of those characters. But the first thing is getting clear, where are you? You know, if I tell you I need you to go to Timbuktu, the first thing you're going to check is, okay, where am I at the moment? Especially if you're in an aircraft and you're going around. It's like, where am I now? And that's where we always start with any kind of coaching, is getting real, uh, a situational assessment. Where are you actually at at the moment? Mm. But I do that from an archetypal point of view, and then I look at their goals. Mm. I almost don't care about the environment at that point. Mm. It may be an influencing factor, it may be something we consider, but we look at it from those two perspectives. Um, and then, then, then you've got your map. Mm. You can see who you need to become, which I think is a much more powerful way of looking at it than what do I... Need, what skills do I need to learn? Skills may be a part of it, but that mm. may not be the part that you need to focus on. It. In a way, it's about creating a vision rather than just like a sort of set of like technical specifications rather than simply being like, oh, hey, here's like, you know, make this thing better. Instead, it's more like, here's an idea of you that you, for the, you know, are, are going to benefit from. That if you, here's a vision of someone you can become who is going to, and, and when you be that person, you know, all of these things that you want resolved will hopefully be improved. Yeah, it's, it's like your election again. You will vote for yourself if you have given yourself enough hope. Mm. You have a vision, a picture of a better future because you've become more. Mm. Um, so I'll often say, I'll help you achieve more by helping you become more. Cool. Cool, cool. Anyway, I think we should probably wrap this up because I think we're definitely over that two-hour mark. So there's one final question I wanted to ask, which is kind of on a similar vein, but to, if you could say to listeners and really kind of anyone, but especially kind of young people, what about the world and the future? Do you mm -hmm. think they should really understand? Or what can they do? So I think that we need, as... As, as a planet, we definitely, we're always interested in advancement. Mm. Mapping very closely to all of my work with the archetypes, not just intellectually, although there is an intellectual framework around it, but more to do with the way in which I see it helping people uh, stabilize, balance, get rid of imbalances, become more effective as individuals. They've done that by going back. So sometimes to advance, we have to turn back. And this is where I would say, or oh, Jung would say, it's kind of we go up, you know, we go up into the, the established, the overarching uh, stuff that was always over and above us. 
but it's also within us. And I think that there's a danger. There's a lot of people who are throwing out the rule books at the moment on every level of society. And there's some places where that's wonderful and that's great and we needed to. There's some other areas where some really important principles are actually being thrown out and we are in danger of our wheels falling off. And exactly, we could go into weeks of discussions about mm. in this area, where is it? In that area, is it? But I would just say to people that don't just go running after the the new and the exciting, uh, especially where we're throwing off old structures, mm. because some of those old structures are actually foundations that if you cut those away, you're going to fall through the floor or <laughs> further. Um, and some of them are like the fence at the edge of the cliff. Mm. And you can jump over that fence or snip it with your wire snippers if you want to, but you might just find yourself falling in a way that you can't. So I, there are dangers, I think, for us throwing off, casting off restraint. Um, as, as one of the old proverbs says, where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. Mm-hmm. Um, which comes back to if there's no dream of a better future, you go, what the hell then? <laughs> and you start doing whatever the hell you want. And then you suffer because of the hell that you get, because there is this thing called karma. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And what a note cool, to finish yeah, on. Great. Certainly uh, some, some, some top-tier advice for uh, hopefully everyone watching. <laughs> Thank you. It's it's been a blast. We've gone all sorts of places. I kind of mm. I don't, I'm interested to see whether we edit out half of what's in the middle. <laughs> but it's it's been uh, delightful, gentlemen. Cool, yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation. And right. we shall see. There may be some chats to come. There may um, indeed be. I hope so. Keep keep watching for those chats here on Techno Social. <laughs>